This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports, and welcome to yet another episode of the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. I am Dan Newman, and I am joined, as always, by my brother and co-host, Andrew Newman. And Andrew, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, Dan. I'm uh, excited to get into tonight's topic. I think it's one that um, one that there will be plenty of fruit to discuss. I know it's... Um, you know, it's a it's a little bit of a ways back, but I think um, you know between the the National League season that year and uh, horse racing and stuff, I think the eighteen ninety eight uh, year in sports is definitely one that um, you know bears a lot of uh, of of interesting discussions that people might not be as familiar with. Now you know perfectly well that this isn't going to be nineteen ninety eight, not eighteen ninety eight. Oh crap. <laughs> So I don't I don't need a lot of this then. Um, You're kidding, no, I uh, no, no, of course I'm kidding. When 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 you said it was we were gonna open up with basketball in 1898, <laughs> I don't even think basketball has been invented yet. Incidentally, eight, 1898, Boston Bean Eaters, 102 and 47, uh, Baltimore Orioles, 96 and 53. So this, this so. is one of the few the few shows, though, where that's a plausible mistake to make <laughs> that, that, that we would be talking about 1898 instead of 1998. You mean our our podcast is one of the few shows where that's plausible to happen? <laughs> yes. I thought maybe you also meant that this is one of the few ones where theoretically we could be. I mean, if we were if we we're getting on to talk about 1951 and you wouldn't necessarily confuse that with 1851. So, no. Yeah, I guess really the 1880s would be as far back as you could go with that. But um, that's that's neither here nor there at the moment. Um, in all seriousness, this is. Um, We've done topics that I remember and was alive for and stuff, obviously, but this is the first one of these uh, year retrospectives that I remember and was alive for. I think the prior to this one, the most recent year that we covered was uh, 86, right? Yeah, we've done 1986. We did 1920. Uh, we did 1982. Um, mm -hmm. We did 1941, uh, and I think yeah. later this year we mm -hmm. want to do 19, uh, 1923, 100 years ago. So, so um, I mean, I was I was born in May of 86, so this is the – I'm really, it's the first one you remember either. You don't remember much of 1986, I wouldn't imagine. No, no. <laughs> You'd have been three, so. Yeah, so. Uh, yeah, this is the first one. I just thought the more I was thinking about it, if you think about 1998 in sports, it's obviously it's 25 years ago, but there's really a lot of stuff there, including some things that I think maybe, you know, get get glossed over a little bit. But obviously, baseball and basketball are the two big ones. But there's there's stuff in football. There's stuff in college sports. There's stuff in um, some of the individual sports. So I, I thought this would be a good one to, to revisit 25 years later. The NBA. NFL and MLB seasons are all things that we've touched on in previous 
years, like previous episodes, we've touched on aspects of these seasons, and they're all really fascinating subjects. And then obviously everything else, but you know, especially for our show where that's the main three thrusts of what we talk about, you know, really uh, fertile ground, I guess you could say. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So before we start, uh, as always, you can check out the podcast uh, on Facebook. Hello, World Sports Podcast. Just give us a search and you'll find us. Give us a like, maybe leave a comment. Tell us how much you like the podcast, any suggestions. And you can also do the same by emailing us. Uh, Hello, World Sports at Gmail dot com. And we will occasionally get an email from a listener or something like that. And they'll tell us uh, and we've actually done one or two episodes based on just suggestions from fans. So uh, feel free to reach out to us in that way. And as we get into this, just the usual caveat, um, we're talking about the sports here, 1998. So that means NBA and NHL seasons that ended in 1998 and started in the fall of 1997. And it means the NFL season that started in 1998 and the playoffs being in January of 1999. So, Again, a distinction that to a non-sports fan wouldn't make a lot of sense, but to a sports fan, you know exactly why. So, Exactly. We're basically looking at all the teams that would be considered the 98 whatever, I think is a good way to look at it. And I guess a good place to start is with the uh, the NBA season and with the final Chicago Bulls season of Michael Jordan and the the second three-peat for the Bulls in eight years and their second consecutive victory over the Utah Jazz in the NBA Finals. Yeah, and a, a team that in the last few years has has become known as the last dance Bulls um, because that was the, uh, the Bulls team that was the subject of the last dance, the ESPN documentary that I think aired mostly was I think it aired during like the heart of the COVID pandemic. So it, it was obviously going to be a big TV event either way, but airing when it did, it was one of the few things people had to sort of coalesce around and talk about. It did. And it was in final production when the, the COVID stuff hit and it wasn't supposed to air until sometime in the fall. And the producers, along with the, the folks at ESPN, they realized that this was not only a golden opportunity for them to have a, uh, you know, basically un, un, you know, no competition for this documentary. They also realized that something that the, the country was really was really sort of aching for. And so, yeah, from April 19th to May 17th. So you're right. I, I think that you didn't really start to see restaurants and bars even in sort of the very limited capacity you didn't really see that till around memorial day so that was that sort of five week period when there was literally just nothing but ordering takeout walking the dog and uh watching tv and i remember my wife and i all five I did a Sunday lot of drinking too um <laughs> my wife and i well you were also one of the few people who never worked from home so you you at least I thought you were going to say I was one of the few people who never watched the documentary either. Well, I was going to get to that in a second. Yeah, you've you've still yet to watch the last dance. So Yeah. 
go ahead. Were you saying something? Well, I was going to say that my wife, Allison and I, that was appointment TV every, every Sunday night for five weeks. We just, no matter what else was going on, we were, which was admittedly not much. We would make, make a point to watch those two hours of the last dance. And it was really, really well done. There's since been a number of imitators, Jeter, Brady, Joe Montana, uh, Somebody else is doing. I think Shaq did one with HBO that was a little, a little. It was fewer episodes. I think it was like four. And, and the Magic did one for Showtime. Maybe there have been a bunch. Last Dance is the best of them. I've watched the Jeter one. I thought it was pretty good, and I've actually really enjoyed the Joe Montana one because that's a guy that you don't really get a lot of. Um, you don't hear a lot from him since his retirement twenty years, twenty some odd years ago, but. The Last Dance set the gold standard for what these documentaries and shows can be. So I want to just and we'll talk about others. The Bulls are going to be the main narrative of the 98 NBA season, but we'll talk about some other stuff. But I can't remember if I remember this from the time or if it's just sort of the lens of, of the past. I mean, I was 12. You were 15. So that's a big enough difference here. Was it apparent that whole year that that was going like, was it kind of well known that that was going to be it for that team that Jordan was going to leave? I mean, I, like I said, in my head, I have it that like, oh, we all knew this all along, but I don't remember if that's actually the truth or if that's just hindsight. So the issue was it was less about Jordan and it was more about Pippen and more about Phil Jackson and Scotty Pippen. And this is in the last dance among other places. Scotty Pippen very early in his career had signed a long-term contract that, and and for those of you who don't know, Scotty Pippen grew up in a very sort of impoverished background. I believe it was uh, one of his brothers was severely handicapped and he was one of like, I don't know. I want to say 10 or 12, um, 10 or 12 kids growing up in this uh, poor black family in rural Arkansas went to a, a D2 school. He went to central Arkansas. He was not a guy that was on anybody's radar as far as being drafted into the NBA. And so when he finally was drafted by, the Bulls, when he finally made it to the NBA, financial security was very important to Scottie Pippen. So Pippen signs this contract, and I believe just based looking at his salaries here that he signs it in the 91 offseason and making approximately like between 2.7 and 3. Point something million. And this is an interesting contract because 93 94 he goes up to 3 uh 92 93 he makes 3.4 million but then by 94 95 he's back down to 2.2 million so i don't know exactly what the specifics are but the fact of the matter is is that he's locked into this contract that has him paid much less than players who are much less decorated so by 97 98 by that final season which is also the final season of his contract Pippen is really starting to make noise like he's leaving. He doesn't feel respected by the Bulls. And in fact, he's sort of even he's almost asking for a trade during the season, despite the fact that they're going for a third straight title. So he wants out. 
and Jerry Krause views this as Jerry Krause, who's the the GM and sort of the architect of the Bulls dynasty, a guy who never gets along well with Jordan, never gets along well with Phil, really. Jerry Krause is sort of starting to make noise that he's going to let Pippen go. He's going to let Phil go at the end of the year, and then he's going to bring in a new coach and start to rebuild. The attitude is always sort of, okay, well, if Jordan wants to come back, we'll have him back. But we're moving on from Pippen. We're moving on from Phil. And then on the flip side, J- Jordan says, I'm not coming back if I'm not playing for Phil Jackson. So it's not necessarily a direct desire to just do it without Michael. But it's sort of understood that those guys are all a package deal. And if Jerry Krause and Jerry Reinsdorf, who's the owner of the Bulls, if they want to move on from Phil, especially that means they're going to move on from Jordan as well. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of like interlocking pieces where, you know, Phil's if they let Phil go, that's going to make them lose Jordan. If they let Pippen go, that's going to be more likely to, you know, have them be less interested in retaining, you know, so, and then, you know, the third guy sort of in that whole thing is Dennis Rodman. And I guess the thought is sort of who the hell in 1998 can predict Dennis Rodman from one minute to the next. And it's funny because Pippen uh, sort of pulls one of these moves where he he needs a surgery. I believe it's on his foot, and I can just verify that real quick. And he does a thing that actually um, that uh, that Shaq would sort of be known for with another Phil Jackson team a couple years later, which is basically Pippen needs surgery on his foot. But instead of getting it right after away, right away after uh, the season ends, he waits. He actually plays in a charity game, much against the wishes of Bulls management. And then he gets this surgery that's going to cause him to miss, uh, you know, a decent chunk of the season. It he gets this surgery to, and he misses a significant part of the beginning of the ninety seven ninety eight season. And Rodman realizes as a veteran that he has to step up and that he's he has to be sort of the second leader of the team along with Jordan and lead this team while they limp along without Pippen. But once Pippen comes back, Rodman sort of really regresses. He needs a break. He disappears to Vegas for a little while. I think that this is the year when he starts really getting into the wrestling stuff, right? And he's missing practice to go appear on WCW TV. So, yeah. And in fact, by the time the playoffs roll around, there you, Robin's still an important part, but in the finals, or maybe it's the Eastern Conference finals, I forget which series it is. Phil is kind of going away from Rodman. He's starting Tony Kukoc over Rodman. So, yeah, he's another one by his third year with the team he's starting to smell a little ripe and they, they kind of realize that maybe it's time for time to move on from Dennis Rodman eventually soon. Also, there is a little humor to imagine the scenario where they Jordan, everything is the same. Jordan retires, Pippen leaves, Jackson leaves, retires, not really whatever, but they bring Dennis Rodman back with that team the next year. Um, I, I mean, I know that would never have happened, but there is a little humor in that. Suddenly he's on that would be on that team. But, um, there's, that is one of the greatest lines from the last dance is when they're at practice, uh, and it's the, you know, the practice is being recorded for the documentary and 
uh, Phil Jackson is really getting on Dennis Rodman and he goes, Dennis, what have you done to challenge your body today? What have you done to challenge your body? And Jordan just goes, his body made it here, Phil. (laughs) (laughs) Despite all of that, they are still the mid nineties, late nineties bulls. They're still very good. They, even without Pippen the first half of the year, they're, 34 and 15 at the all-star break. I believe it said they started nine and seven. Then they went on a 15 to four run. So about 15 and four run. So by the time Pippen returned, they were 24 and 11. Uh, They did lose Steve Kerr in January. So he was gone for the balance of that year. But, you know, despite all of this, the bulls are still the number one seed in the Eastern conference. They're still, um, you know, they win. I think they finished 62 and 20. So not that far off the mark of some of those teams a few years earlier than that. The Bulls in Utah who end up meeting in the finals are both 62 and 20. They both lead their conferences at 62 and 20. And as a sort of an aside note, as a preview of the finals, the Jazz did beat the Bulls both times that year that they played in the regular season. I did not realize uh, that. Yeah, I saw that as I was I was looking it up. So Jordan is the MVP of the league again. Is there any other like other NBA stuff that you want to cover? I mean, I have a few things, but like before we get into the playoffs, any non Bulls regular season related things that you think are are worth getting into a little bit? I want to talk a little bit about the Lakers because this is this is Kobe Bryant's rookie year and he ends up that, that, you know, Charlotte drafts him and then he basically refuses to go to Charlotte and they make the trade. Charlotte sends him to the Lakers. The Lakers send a send Vladi Divac, who'd been the sort of the one of the leaders of the team throughout the 90s. And it's also the year Vladi Divac is expendable because it's the first year. Is this the first? No, is this the first year for Shaq? It is, isn't it? Yeah. 97, 98. I think it is. Yeah, that sounds right, because they make the finals in 95. And then I'm pretty sure that O'Neal is there two more years before they before they get rid of. um, Oh, no, 96, 97 is his. um, And I might be off a year. Is that that might be. um, Hold on. That might be that might be Kobe's first year, too. but yeah, 96, 97 was, was Shaq's first year with the Lakers. While you're looking that up, a couple of uh, sort of things that are maybe a little lighter. to, to and, and that was Kobe's rookie year, too. So that, OK, it's Kobe's first all star year in 97, 98. It's his second year with the team. OK, and that was who was the coach of that team? Was that Del Harris? That was Del Harris. And there's something I want to get into about that in a second as well. Go ahead. OK, so. um Del Harris is the coach of this team immediately before he, they got one more year at Del Harris and they bring in Phil Jackson in the, uh, in the 99 2000 team. And um, Harris is just sort of a guy who he's trying to um, trying to connect with his teammates or with his players. And he's kind of a Jeff Perlman in his great book, uh, three ring circus about those Lakers teams said that Harris is kind of a, a tough guy. Um, He's kind of sad. And it says at the behest of his wife, Anne, he hired hired a designer to create www.delharris.com, then charge <laughs> visitors twenty dollars for a one year membership. 
that included these great benefits, an autographed photograph, an official Dell's Club membership card, a quarterly newsletter, and a birthday card. Fewer than 100 people subscribed. I'm surprised it was that many. Well, I didn't say how many fewer than 100. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's a good point. Eight is fewer than 100. Um, I guess you give them the foresight for being uh, the vanguard of the internet in the, in the late 90s there and trying to a subscription-based model, much like we see today. Um <laughs> Maybe they should give that another try now. Um, is Del Harris still alive? Yeah, I, I was going to say, and I think I think he is still alive. I'm not sure. Well, we haven't done him on Immemorial of these last. You know where years. I can find? You know where I can find out? Delharris.com. <laughs> that's right. Like, I'd have to imagine that that's no longer operable. No, he is still alive. No. He is 86 years old. Okay, the domain Delharris.com may be for sale for twelve thousand dollars, which I don't think. I have much interest well, in doing. He's got to he's got to recoup that money somehow. Uh, <laughs> and, but, then the, um, but. and then the only other thing is that Kobe makes his first All Star game in the ninety seven ninety eight series, and he sort of um, he sort of alienates his his All Star teammates a little bit. And I'll uh, this is from another another book here. Um, this is from a guy named Sean Devaney, who wrote a book called The History of the NBA in 12 Games. So he tries to take over the game. He takes 10 shots on his 11 touches in the first quarter. Uh, he does finish an alley-oop from uh, Kevin Garnett, another guy who was straight out of high school. He kind of goes after Jordan defensively, but uh, it also becomes clear that the the other players are kind of annoyed at him he waves off carl malone at one point when carl malone tries to set a pick for him and um uh, malone asks uh george carl to take him out of the game take that is take malone take himself instead carl instead pulls kobe bryant bryant uh with 244 left in the third period uh george carl pulls kobe out of the game in the third period i don't know if i said third or fourth and then bryant sits the rest of the third and all of the fourth quarter so he's kind of with his cockiness and if you if you know anything or if you read anything about the the career of of kobe bryant in the in his early years that's sort of a, a recurring theme of Kobe Bryant's early NBA career. It, much like Jordan had 20 years earlier or 15 years earlier, he's really sort of alienating some of his uh, some of his fellow superstars with his his arrogant attitude early on. Yeah, and that's what led to sort of the end of their first dynasty in the in L.A. and ironically after a three peat uh, and just like what we're going to talk about tonight with Phil Jackson at the helm of that team too. Um, and Carl Malone plays a role in that too. <laughs> That's true too. A couple other uh, things from this year, just sort of more um, peripheral things. This was the first year uh, the Washington bullets became the Washington wizards in this season and began in December playing their games in the, MCI Center, uh, Verizon Center, Capital One Arena, still where them and the uh, still where them and the Capitals play uh, in downtown DC. Latrell Sprewell, PJ Carlissimo choking incident took place this uh, in this season 
when PJ Carlissimo, when Latrell Sprewell in a Warriors practice left the floor, came back, choked PJ Carlissimo, uh, was suspended for 68 games. You also had, I think, a significant thing to talk about was the rookie year for Tim Duncan of the Mm -hmm. San Antonio Spurs, who the Spurs have been a pretty good team, sort of a perennial second round team. The year before this, David Robinson gets hurt like a couple of games into the season. The Spurs drop like a stone. They end up winning the lottery and landing Tim Duncan, who would go on to see them through to five championships in his tenure there. And then the other thing I just thought is at least worth mentioning is this was the year of some interesting coaching moves. This was uh, Rick Pitino taking over the Celtics with the hope of landing same in uh, Tim Duncan. You had um, Larry Bird taking over in Indiana uh, as the head coach of the Pacers, Chuck Daly in Orlando, and Larry Brown goes from Indiana to Philadelphia, where he would end up coaching a young Allen Iverson and a couple of years later get them into an NBA final. So, you know, some interesting movement there that I thought was at least worth uh worth giving in like setting sort of context for uh for the season. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit more about the Pacers in a minute because I want to I want to just spend a minute on their seven game Eastern Conference Finals series with the Bulls. I guess maybe we want to talk about what the Knicks do a little bit that year because they have kind of an interesting season. Yeah, yeah, I think this is always the um we should, you know, we're always going to at least mention our our local teams in this. Um, one of them will get more coverage than the others in in this particular episode. But um, so the Knicks actually struggle pretty pretty significantly this year. Um, they end up the number seven seed. But they were predict. I don't know if you remember this. Sports Illustrated picked the Knicks to win the finals in this offseason. That was boredom more than anything else. There was no reason to pick anybody but the Bulls to win the championship. The one thing I'll say, though, is that this Nick team was a really, really deep team. They were basically five too too deep at, at all five positions. You starting lineup with Houston, Alan Houston, Charles Oakley, Larry Johnson, uh, Patrick Ewing and uh, Charlie Ward was the point guard. But then they had John Starks off the bench, who'd been the sixth man of the year the year before Chris Childs. And then they had three pretty good veteran forwards in Chris Mills, Buck Williams. And I believe this is Buck Williams only year with the Knicks. Um, you know, he'd been there the year before then. Maybe it was Cummings. Who's Terry Cummings. Who's only year. This was his only year with the team because one of the guys, yeah, this was, this was Cummings only year. So they were expected. Now, again, obviously you're right. It's laughable in retrospect, that any that that team would be able to compete with the Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. But people were thinking this team was going to be really good. And then it kind of all comes crashing down literally when about 25 games into the season, the Knicks are playing Milwaukee and Ewing gets fouled by Andrew Lang breaks his wrist. And I remember even at the time they were saying that it was, the severity of this wrist break was such that it was not an injury. It didn't, the doctors didn't treat it or didn't look at it as a basketball injury. It was the type of injury that you would see more in a, in a car crash and Ewing to his great credit at 35 years of age actually comes back to play in the playoffs in the second round against Miami. The Knicks beat, uh, 
who do they beat in the first round? I think it might even they be beat Miami in the first round. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. You're right. You're right. They'd be okay. I'm sorry. So it's the second round where Ewing comes back to play mm-hmm. against the Pacers. Um, and we'll talk about the Miami series briefly in a minute here, too. But Ewing, after the Knicks beat Miami, sort of valiantly wills himself back to come play in the 98 series, thinking that maybe he can sort of propel his team to a to a finals or to a title. Not meant to be, but that's this is sort of considered one of the, the great what if seasons of the 90s Knicks, because, again, did they get past the Bulls? Probably not. But they were so good that they were being picked to win the finals and then they end up not having anywhere near the season that anybody thought they were going to have. So they end up the seven seed. They play Miami in the first round. This is actually the second of four straight years where they'll play Miami and the first of three straight victories for the Knicks. Uh, there are, you know, a heavy from a seeding standpoint, they're the seven seed. The Heat are the two seed. And the Knicks end up after they drop game one, they win game two uh, in Miami, 96 to 86. Game three, back at the Garden, they lose 91-85. And then they come up with wins in game four. And then a big 17-point win in game five to take a uh, pretty significant upset over the Heat and uh, get a little revenge from the year before. And this is also the second straight year where there's a fight. And there are suspensions. This one is between Larry Johnson and Alonzo Mourning, who had been teammates of the um teammates and didn't like each other particularly much during the uh their years with the the charlotte hornets so they get in a fight morning ends up i think morning ends up being suspended for um for game five uh, i believe and there's the famous picture of jeff van gundy uh pulling on Alonzo Mourning's leg and uh, sort of kind of embarrassing himself. Here's this little guy <laughs> tugging on the leg of of this big uh, Alonzo Mourning. Yeah, Mourning Mourning is suspended. Mourning does not play in Game Five. And in fact, when the, in Game Four, when Mourning is coming off the court, Riley says to him, Pat Riley, the Heat coach, says to him, "You just blew the season." However, prior to game five, and this is all from uh, Paul Nepper's uh, great book, The Knicks of the 90s, which Paul, he might have been the first ever author guest on Hello Old Sports. We interviewed him way back in the January, February of 2021 time period about his book on the Knicks of the 90s. Yeah, one of the first one of the first authors that we interviewed. And uh, Riley says, the only thing I'm disappointed in is that Zoe didn't connect when he tried to punch Larry Johnson in the face. I would have punched him too if he went after my injured face. Morning had fractured his cheekbone in March and was playing without his protective mask for the first time in a couple of months. So, yeah, so this has sort of been a brewing thing, not only between Morning and Johnson, but also between the Knicks and the Heat. And unlike the previous year where the Knicks had been the ones who really got hurt by the suspension in the deciding game or deciding games because of a fight. This year, it's morning getting suspended. Knicks win game five, head to the finals or head to the next round of the playoffs, end up losing to the Pacers in the second round. But the Knicks heat rivalry continues to heat up in the 1998 playoffs. So just to zoom ahead a little bit, just because knowing what we have to get to still left in the NBA and then everything else, it's interesting looking at this. Not a ton of competitive series in 
any of the playoffs in the first round. There's two five game series, both in the West, uh, Utah over Houston, Seattle over Minnesota, both the one and two seed, but they both advance the second round. Every series is a five game series, Chicago over Charlotte four one, Indiana over the Knicks four one, Utah over San Antonio four one, Lakers over Seattle four one. And then the Western Conference Finals was Utah against the Lakers, who we talked about, and Utah sweeps them. So I know you want to talk about the Eastern Conference Finals, but I just figured I'd get through the rest of that. So real quick on the Western Conference Finals, this is the final straw for Knicks Van Exel with the L.A. Lakers. Uh, you know, there's, there's, it's becoming more of a Shaq and Kobe team, but Del Harris, despite his um, great knowledge of modern technology, is not really connecting <laughs> with Van Exel. And prior to game four, as the team is uh, leaving practice, Van Exel leads the team in a cheer and says, one, two, three, Cancun, meaning one more loss and we get to all go to Cancun and enjoy our offseason. That's the last straw for Van Exel with the Lakers. So, yeah, better days are to come for the Lakers uh, in in the Phil years. But in this particular year, you're right. They do get they do get swept four to nothing. This Pacer team, like you said, it's Larry Bird's first year as the head coach of the Indiana Pacers. And this is a deep team that the that the Pacers have obviously read led by Reggie Miller, but Rick Smith's. It, who and I believe is this might be Smith's all star year. This is this is Rick Smith's only all star year. So they got Miller, they got Smith's, they got veteran guys, they got Mark Jackson, who will remain with them for another few years, is kind of the you know the catalyst, the floor general at point guard. Chris Mullen joins the team. You know, they got the Davis brothers. Jalen Rose uh, is is a young star sort of coming into his own. Derek McKee, who's been with the team for a while. So this is sort of a growing, very deep Pacer team that would make it to the conference finals again the following year in 99, lose to the Knicks, and then in 2000, make it all the way to the NBA finals against the the aforementioned Los Angeles Lakers. The Pacers are one of only two teams in the Jordan years. Once they start winning, this so this is 91 forward. They're one of only two teams to take the Jordan Bulls to a seven game series. The first is the are the Knicks in 92 in the um, I guess that would be in the second round. Second in 92. Round. Yeah, that's second the round. that's the year that the Knicks have Xavier McDaniel and take them all the way to seven games after winning game one in Chicago. And then the second team is this Pacer team that takes the Bulls to seven games. They lose the first two games in Chicago, and then they win game three on a uh, on a last-minute uh, three-pointer by... Uh, I'm sorry, that's game four. They win game three, 107 to 105, so a two-point win. And then the following year, following game in game four, Miller hits a buzzer-beating three to win game four, for the Pacers, they go back to Chicago. They get blown out 106 to 87. But then back in Indiana, they managed to pull out another win, 92 to 89. And they go to game seven. They're in Chicago and they hang with them. Final score of the game is 88 to 83. But at some point in the fourth, at one point in the fourth quarter, it's 77 to 74 
Indy. And so the Bulls, and and also keep in mind, in, in game seven in 92 against the Knicks, the Bulls had gotten, the Bulls had blown the Knicks out in that game seven. So this was the first time in a game seven that they were really in danger of losing. Now they rally and they end up pulling it out 88 to 83. But as late as the fourth quarter of the 98 Eastern Conference Finals game seven, there's a real chance that the Bulls are not going to the NBA Finals. So they hold on, they win. They go to the Finals, and it's it's sort of an interesting thing because it's the first time in this Bulls run that they're playing a, the same team. I guess technically, even if they had played the Lakers, it would have been the same franchise as they beat in their first Finals because they beat the Lakers in 91, but they beat the Lakers in 91, they beat the Blazers in 92. They beat the Suns in 93. Couple of year hiatus. Then 96 is the Sonics. 97 is the Jazz. And they go into 98, and it's the same Utah Jazz team. Now, whether this is a, I don't think that the 97 Jazz by most metrics were a better team. They were 64 and 18 instead of 62 and 20. They were, um, uh, I believe Malone was the MVP in 97 um, and 98. It was Jordan again, but in some ways this felt like a team that was better prepared to beat, to beat the jazz, to beat the bulls. Firstly, it was a team that had been there to be honest at this point, the teams in the Eastern conference and I know, yeah, they, okay. They, they got close in game seven or whatever, but um the bulls aura was so dominant over those teams in the Eastern conference that, it, I have a hard time believing any of them down the stretch in a game like that would have lost to the Bulls with or would have beaten the Bulls with you know the chips on the line because the Bulls had tormented them for so many years. But Utah's a team with relatively little history with them. I don't know. It felt like possibly you know Utah with two Hall of Famers of their own. I don't know. It, it felt like at least going in there was a chance that this Utah team might have been drawn up you know, to have a good shot. Well, and they had played them tight the year before. And the year before, the 97 finals was tied at two. If I'm yeah. remembering correctly. Yes, I believe so, yeah. This year, it's not. This year, it's it's 3-1, and then the Jazz win game, the Jazz win game five to, to force a game six back in Utah. Yeah, so 97, real quick. The Bulls win the first two games at home. Uh, but they in 97, they win by two and 12 is a big way. They win by 12 in game two. Then the jazz win game three and game four game four is 78 to 73 game five in Utah. The bulls win by two and then they go back to, uh, to Chicago, but only win by four. So they did have a, you know, tougher time than it would indicate. Um, I'm talking about going in. Was this the first time they wouldn't have had home court in the NBA finals? Is this the first time they wouldn't have had home court? They, definitely um, didn't. they didn't have it against Phoenix. Oh, in 93, they didn't? Yeah, oh, that's that, right. Because they were all, incidentally, there's not a lot to criticize the those Bulls teams for, but they were not always the best at closing series out in the finals. They were down 3-0 to, to Seattle, let Seattle win two and get back in them before they closed in game six. They were up 2-0 they were up and 3-1 on Phoenix and then lost game five to the Suns in Chicago to make it a three, two series and have to go back to Phoenix to close it out in game 
six. And then even in in this series in 98, they're up three one and then lose to the lose to the bull, lose to Utah rather in game five, 83 to 81. So yeah, they're not necessarily the best at closing out these finals. I almost wonder if it got to the point where they were just like even subconsciously just toying with these teams, knowing that eventually they would they would be able to put them away. But the the only other thing I, I think there's just we should talk a little bit about game six, but there's there is one other interesting uh game in this uh in this NBA finals. I don't know if uh if you know what I'm talking about. This would be the game where the, didn't the Bulls like destroy them in one game? They destroyed and they won by 42, which is not necessarily the biggest thing. It's the fact that the Bulls 96 and Utah 54, which I believe is the lowest amount of points for a team, even in the, even including the pre shot clock era, which I think when did the shot clock era end? like 54, 55, I think was the, the uh the institution of the shot clock so that's that is a that is a really bad loss and the fact that the jazz were able to recover and win a couple more games in the series is testament to the fact that they they weren't just lying down but yeah a game three blowout loss 96 to i guess they only win one more game in the series but still 96 to 54 that is just a a pathetic showing game six is a close game it's a back and forth game it's tied at 83 with a minute left, uh, Jordan hits has just hit two free throws to tie the game, and then John Stockton makes a three point shot to put the Bulls put the Jazz up eighty six to eighty three. Come down, Jordan hits a layup. It's eighty six eighty five, and then with eighteen seconds left, Jordan steals the ball from Carl Malone. Bulls come down on the other side. Jordan hits the famous shot over Brian Russell. You know, and there's that famous uh, picture of him sort of leaving his hand up in the air on the follow through of his shot. A lot of people always say that they think that Jordan pushed off uh, of of Brian Russell when he was dribbling the ball and the Jazz don't score on sort of a last ditch effort to, to you know, to shoot a three pointer. And Michael Jordan uh, kind of goes off into the sunset at the time. Everybody thought forever. You know, obviously, he's got his Wizards years that come after that, but a, a storybook end to a storybook dynasty with the Jordan as the greatest player of all time, doing it on both ends of the floor, getting the steal and then coming back and coming down and hitting the shot to win the series for the bulls. Yeah. An an iconic moment. Um, obviously, uh, you know, as a kid, I, I really, those couple of years, I really did like those Utah teams. So in addition to Jordan sort of tormenting me as, as a young Knicks fan. He also did it to me with these couple of Utah teams that I really liked. I'll strip any sort of humor out of it. He obviously did push off. Uh, Brian Russell is is playing defense in a way that, you know, by the time the camera cuts to Jordan, Brian Russell is on ice skates forward. He obviously pushed off. You're also obviously not getting that call in that situation, especially with Michael Jordan. As much as I would like to sit here and say, you know, oh, he, uh, you know, it's tainted because he pushed off. You you were never going to see that play called. And it wasn't, you know, he would have had to have basically grabbed him by the shirt and thrown him on the ground for there to be a foul called in that situation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 
the rare, although we really do get two of them in this year, um, the rare end to a superstar's career that, um, and, you know, obviously Michael Jordan, there's no bigger superstar ever than Michael Jordan in any sport. The fitting end um, to a, a, the career that ends on, and again, obviously he can't resist and goes back to the Wizards, but in that moment, remarkably, improbably, Michael Jordan's career is going to get an ending that lives up to the rest of his career. And he hadn't been the guy who hit the big shots for the previous championship. Paxson in 93, Kerr the year before in 97. So it was it was something unique and very fitting that he did it for himself in that 98 NBA Finals. Do I talk a little bit real quick about the college basketball season? I don't really. Well, think that- well no, we got it. We got a couple of things we got to get to with the NBA still. Um, so real quick, the draft number one pick is Michael Ola Candy. Uh, obviously does not work out. Um, there are some great players, Hall of Famers picked in this draft. They're just picked a little later. Uh, Vince Carter goes number five overall. Uh, number eight, or excuse me, number nine, Dirk Nowitzki. Number 10, Paul Pierce. Obviously guys who uh, are Hall of Famers. So that's the draft. But then while it's more associated with the following season, just a couple of weeks after the NBA finals are over, the NBA owners lock the players out mm-hmm. and, you know, again, cause we got other stuff to get to. We'll just do this quickly, but it's essentially the owners wanting a hard cap, a ceiling on contracts. They want an elimination of, you know, the bird rule where teams could, you know, if it was a guy under contract with you already, you could sign him for more money. Um, long and short, they, the owners ultimately get a lot of what they want as the season. They don't get a hard cap. They don't get an NFL style cap, but at the time, at least it's seen as a win for the owners. Um, it says owners also sought to prevent large contract for young players, similar to the 126 six year deal, 126 million six year deal that Minnesota star Kevin Garnett had just gotten. So they want like a rookie wage scale kind of thing. You know, again, you they would have to almost do a whole episode on it, but um, I've always thought this lockout was sort of a fitting end to, not even fitting, but sort of a, a clear end to the '80s, '90s basketball sort of boom, which was an uninterrupted run from Jordan or from Magic and Bird to Jordan, and obviously there's tons of other players in there, but they Jordan hits that shot. Jordan basically exits the stage. They go into a lockout and seemingly when they come back, and I know this isn't fully accurate, but seemingly when they come back, the league is run by a new generation of players. You know, the Rashid Wallace's and the Allen Iverson's and that sort of thing. And I think it, you know, it, it was a turning point in the league. And the biggest story in the NBA in a lot of ways in 99 is the Knicks. And they're led by Sprewell, who would choke his coach a year previous. And, and mm-hmm. some of the players, they say some things during the lockout. That, I think it was a Kenny Anderson who was saying that he might have to sell one of his 10 cars or something. They don't acquit themselves well during the lockout. I mean, even Ewing, who was the leader of the players union, kind of 
does some things that are definitely sort of maybe missteps and they don't they don't do too well in the court of public opinion. And you're right. Even though Jordan does eventually come back, it's a very definite end of an era Mm. beginning of the next era. No question about it. You want to talk about college football or college basketball real quick? You said, yeah, there's not a lot to talk about. I feel like at least not, you know, nothing memorable really popped out at me. It's Kentucky. It's, uh, it's Tubby Smith in his rookie year. You talked about Patino going to the. You talked about Patino going to the Celtics. Tubby Smith takes over and leads Kentucky to, I believe it's their seventh NCAA title. I just had it up. But yeah, seventh national championship for Kentucky. They defeat the. Uh, they defeat. The Utah, Utah, Lute Olson's Utah team in the in the NCAA championship. Lute Olson was the game. coach at Arizona. I'm sorry, not Lute Olson. Rick Majerus, not Lute Olson. Rick Majerus's mm-hmm. Utah team. I, I mixed up the Utes. Um, yeah, and n- nothing really. Again, I'm sure if, if if you know somebody who's a real expert on college basketball could point to some memorable moments. Nothing really comes to mind for me. They did. Uh, lose to they did only beat Stanford in the 1997-98 NCA uh, the final four that you know the final four round uh, and this was a team this uh, this Stanford team was led uh, among others by the Collins brothers who were both freshmen on the team and that's Jason and Jaron Collins the brothers who both play, ended up playing uh, center in the NBA Jason Collins best known as being the first openly gay player in the NBA. I remember Jason Collins even more so than that for his early years with the Nets when they were in New Jersey and his guarding of Shaq in the NBA finals. And even though he didn't do a great job, he probably did better than anybody else. The Nets threw at Shaq in the, those O2 NBA finals. So, and that's that, that really sort of jumped out for me because I don't think Stanford, they, They've done very little in the NCAA tournament for the last, you know, 70 some odd years. A couple of years later, they made it to the Elite Eight. But this is their only Final Four appearance. Um, re- really, I mean, ever, I guess, is, a, you know, they they won it in 41-42. They won the NCAA title, but it didn't necessarily mean then what it means now. And if this season by season summary is to believe to be believed, they don't even really make it back to postseason play for about another 40 years or so. So a sort of a, a, a rare bright spot in uh NCAA tournament basketball for uh the, the Stanford Cardinal. But and as we know, stand here now, you know, in July of 2023, their conference is collapsing from underneath yeah. them. Mm-hmm. Um the uh I had forgotten the. I remembered Utah made a final in like '96 with Van Horn or Nate, whatever it was. I had totally forgotten that they made this final a couple of years later too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, do you want to go to hockey next, or did you have something else you wanted to get to? No, nothing else with college hoops. Hockey for my uh, for my fellow DC area residents. This is one of only two. Stanley Cup final appearances for the Washington Capitals. They don't manage to win any games in the finals. They're swept by uh, Scotty Bowman's uh, Detroit Red Wings team. Uh, Bowman uh, ties Toe Blake, uh, who had been the, one of the great coaches of the Montreal Canadiens. He ties Toe Blake with eight 
eight Stanley Cup titles. He breaks that record a few years later. I think it's in 2003 when the when the Red Wings win the Stanley Cup over the Devils in 2003. I think it was 02 because I feel like 03 was the Devils over the Ducks. So you might be right. You might be right about that. But nonetheless, this is the tie. This is this is the series which enables the great Scotty Bowman to tie the all time record for Stanley Cup victories. And you were right. It was 2002. The Devils beat the Car- I'm sorry. The Red Wings beat the Carolina Hurricanes in the NCAA uh, in the in the Stanley Cup finals. And that's Bowman's uh, ninth and I believe final championship to pull him ahead of Toe Blake for the all time best. Um Nothing else. Uh, it's the last season for Fox Sports covering the NHL. We discussed that <laughs> in a previous episode about Fox Sports in the 90s and all of the new things that they were doing. The the, the Stanley Cup finals go to uh, go to ABC ESPN, where they remain for uh, for a while uh, before they end up going to the lockout to yeah. the lockout. Then they end up on NBC and now they're back on uh, they're with. Uh, they're with Turner now. And then who's their uh, Turner and ESPN. Have so, both, okay, so they're have back with ES, they're back with ESPN ABC yeah. now, at least yeah. part way. Um, so, go ahead. I'm sorry. I had one more hockey thing, but you go, go ahead. Go ahead. You go. No, go ahead with the hockey thing. Dominic Hasek wins back-to-back MVPs for the Buffalo Sabres. This is one of two back-to-back MVPs that he wins in the late nineties. He is one of the few uh, goalies ever to win the most valuable player award in the NHL. And he is the only goalie ever to win MVP twice. Oh, interesting. Um, so the playoffs, it was actually the fourth straight year that the finals were a sweep. 97, it, it had been the Red Wings the year before, too. Uh, they had swept the Flyers in that year, and they swept, swept Washington in this year. No series in the playoffs went to a deciding game. Um, there were some six-game series, lots of five-game series. No game sevens in the NHL playoffs. Um you know, we're we're in the middle of this Red Wings sort of era of dominance, Steve Eiserman, Sergey Fedorov, all of that. Um a couple of sort of um other things that I thought were interesting. The the NHL, they're still very much in the middle of their Sunbelt expansion. Um at the start of the year, the league approved four additional franchises who would start playing by the 2000 season. It was uh, expansion franchises in Nashville, Atlanta, Columbus, and St. Paul. The Atlanta team has since relocated to Winnipeg and become the Jets again. There's a, a Jets again. Um, Columbus, St. Paul, Nashville, all still there. And even the St. Paul is kind of a part of the Sunbelt expansion because the original Minnesota hockey team, the North stars moved to Dallas about five years before this. And then Minnesota Mm. got a back. So three of those four teams still exist as they do. Um, It was also in a moment, but none of them, did any of them play in the 97, 98 season or was, but they 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 announced, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. The, the 97, 98 season was also the first um, year in a, in a moment of great, um, personal sorrow for me and my fellow longtime Connecticut residents. Uh, the 90, this was the first season of the Carolina hurricanes who were previously the Hartford whalers. So the hurricanes continued a Southern March from a lot of NHL teams. Uh, this was just firmly in the era of the NHL expanding 
you know, down south, southeastern. And 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 to be honest, most of those franchises have been successful. Obviously, Atlanta wasn't. Atlanta had to move to to Winnipeg and and Phoenix, which is obviously out west. But you know, they've been pretty much a long term failure. But hockey is hugely popular in Nashville. The Predators draw all over the place. The Lightning have won two cups recently. They've won three cups total. Um, they do very well. The Florida Panthers, um, you know, it, have dealt with runs of apathy, but you know, it's it's been more successful than it hasn't been. Carolina's won a couple of cups. Um, so just a few other sort of um again, trivia, whatever you want to call it. The Blackhawks missed the playoffs. It was the first time since 1969 that the Blackhawks had missed the playoffs. I believe Rant began a run of them missing the playoffs most years after this for a little while. Can I just interrupt uh, you here on this? Go ahead. Because I, I was reading a book. It actually was it's, it was actually a Bob Ryan book, so it was about Boston sports. Uh, but it, he kind of mentioned this tangentially, and the book was written in the mid-'90s. Do you know that up until like yeah. sometime – do you know what I'm getting at here about the Blackhawks? They weren't on TV in Chicago. Their home games like, weren't on TV in Chicago until like 10 years ago. Well, it was a little longer than that now. But the, the reason I knew that is so they the, the Blackhawks had their mini dynasty in um, starting in, I guess, 2010. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because 2000 or 2011. Because, yeah, they, and they won three cups in, I want to say, six years. And they won the cup in Boston. I should have been there. I would have been there, except I was back at work already. This is—he's um, quoting CM Punk. Well, you can cut that out. You can cut that out. Uh, cut that part out. Um, but uh, so, th- I remember reading when they won their first cup in 2011, uh, or the first cup in you know a long time. Reading an article talking about like, and you know, every time a team wins a championship, the local articles are about like, oh, the fans have had to go through so much and that kind of thing. But it said something about like how the owner was just still sticking to this mindset from like the forties that like, Oh, if we put the games on television, the fans won't go. So they, they literally, I think it was objectively sometime in the nineties might've been a little bit later, but it was, it actually might've been in the two thousands. I think it was in the two thousands. They you couldn't watch Blackhawk home games on television, which is something that the rest of the world realized was a bad idea. Like, 30 years, years earlier. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I, I did know that. And this was obviously the start of their swoon in 69. Two other things that I'll, I'll get into. This was the last year of the traditional division names, the Adams, the Patrick, the Norris and the Smythe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe they had already reorganized them into basically conferences like an Eastern conference and a Western conference, but they kept the division names for a few years. Like it used to be the Campbell and the whales and it was organized more like that uh, baseball and football are. And then the last thing, do you know what? This was the first year that the NHL was without. I know that's worded. I have a guess. Okay. Is, Is this the first year that every player was wearing a helmet? Yes, Craig McTavish had retired at the end of the 97 season, and he was the last player who was grandfathered in, uh, who was in the league when the helmet rule went into place. So he was the last player without a helmet. So there were there was at least a game in that 1996. I don't know if the team he was on played a national TV game, but there was a chance there was a Fox NHL game with the blue laser light. 
and a player playing without the help without a helmet. <laughs> I actually remember watching a documentary a couple of years ago on the 94 Rangers and the the 94 Rangers traded for Craig McTavish mid season. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about how, yeah, you know, there was like a contemporary news report and it's like, yeah, the Rangers are bringing in one of the few players who doesn't wear a helmet anymore. Before we move on from hockey, I got to just really kind of give a quick, uh, quick overview of uh, men's college hockey. The national champions that year were the uh, Michigan Wolverines who beat the Boston College Eagles three to two in overtime in the final game yeah. of the uh, future, Mets. your future alma mater. Incorrect. My my alma mater is Boston University, and we once did an episode on their hockey team. BU, however, was the number one seed in the East, uh, the Eastern region or the Eastern bracket, uh, whatever you want to call it. They lost in the second round to New Hampshire four to three. Although uh, their star player, Chris Drury, did uh, future New York Ranger, Chris Drury, did win the Hobie Baker Award as the as the best player in college hockey. Uh, Drury, who is the uh, president and general manager of the New York Rangers to this day. So that's a little little snapshot of college hockey for you as well. And while we're on the before we leave the winter sports, I had written a note I meant to bring up when we talked about college basketball, the uh, women's college basketball that year, Tennessee uh, won their third straight title under Pat summit. Mm-hmm. This was, uh, I believe their sixth championship overall. This was sort of in the run of, it was still mostly Tennessee. UConn was just on the door starting to really challenge and ultimately take them over for that top spot in, you know, all of college basketball. This uh, Tennessee team went 39 and oh, it's considered one of their best teams ever. Um, one of the best teams in women's college basketball ever in the NCAA tournament. They won, I guess they were challenged a little bit in the elite eight against North Carolina, but they won the national semifinal, the final four. They won by 28 points. They won the national championship by 18. They won their sweet 16 game by 32. Just an all around dominant uh, Tennessee Lady Vols team that year. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's move on to baseball. And this is obviously one of the most talked about, written about, remembered, you name it, baseball seasons of all time. And that's the 1998 baseball season and specifically the Maguire Sosa home run chase where they both obliterate Roger Maris's longstanding single season record. Maguire ends up with 70 actually hits his sec 62nd against the Cubs with Sosa playing the outfield off of Steve Traxel. And then Sosa ends up with uh, an equally or not equally, but an almost as impressive 66. Now, obviously the, steroid allegations or uh, probably more than allegations the steroid revelations against both men have definitely put a damper on that memory but at the time it was one of the most exciting sports ser- uh sports stories of a of a generation yeah let's almost let's talk about this and then talk about the rest of the baseball season instead of trying to weave it weave it through um you know, we come to it, and and I mean me, we meaning me and you, probably come to this from one of the most thin slices of this situation imaginable, at least me, which is, I was 
again, 1998, I was in seventh grade, you know, going into eighth grade by, or not. Yeah. No. Sixth grade going into seventh grade. So the, the first half of 1998, I would have been in sixth grade. The second half would have been in seventh. So you would have been in, in ninth and then 10th. Um, I didn't really know anything about steroids. I, I, the only thing, to be honest, what I knew about steroids back then was that uh, wrestlers got in trouble for taking them, but that they all were on steroids. Um, that was like my general understanding of steroids, was that they made you strong. Um, I remember this happening. And as a Yankee fan, and as a got person who even then... Uh, you know, as much as a 12 year old is capable of being like a sports history person, not wanting Mark McGuire to break the record, having nothing to do with steroids, having everything to do with the fact that it was a Yankee record set in 1961. Um, I doubt many people, you know, who were my generation cared about that. You have to be a Yankee fan. to. So that's what I mean. I just, I came from this from such a skewed perspective of my feelings of it at the time. I think it was also the fact, and I didn't, you know, at 14 or 15, whatever I was, didn't suspect that it was about steroids either. But I think it might've also been the fact that they were just obliterating it. It wasn't a home run chase. And I don't know if I conceptualize steroids, but something about it seemed wrong. Like this is too easy for these guys. Now, look, maybe some people said the same thing 30 some odd years before about Maris with expansion and more games and all that stuff. But it just felt and I don't know if I thought it was more about um, the ballparks or the ball or, you know, expansion, thinning the, you know, thinning the pitching ranks. But it just something about it just felt like these guys were just obliterating a record that it shouldn't have been quite so easy for them to obliterate. So that's that was I remember sort of my even if not entirely articulated thought about the whole thing. Yeah. And and weren't there a few other guys chasing it at various points in the season too? Was Griffey involved for a little while and Greg Vaughn, I want to say? I don't know if Greg Greg Vaughn did was that his really great year? I think Greg Vaughn hit 50 that year because maybe it he, was a different year. No, I think it was that year because he was on the Padres team that ended up facing the Yankees in the World Series. And the Yankees had almost traded for Greg Vaughn the year before. Yeah, 50 home runs for Greg Vaughn. So uh, there's a really good article on ESPN that came out a few years ago, right about the time when that 30 for 30 aired about this called Long Gone Summer. So at the end of April, April 30th, Sammy Sosa has six. Three guys have 11. McGuire, Griffey, and Vinny Castilla, <laughs> who is playing in the Coors Field, uh, one of the first years of Coors Field for the Colorado Rockies at the end of May. This is interesting. McGuire has 27. Sosa has 13. So after two months, McGuire's got Sosa doubled. Also at the end of May, A-Rod has 20. Griffey has 19. And then two Colorado Rockies, Vinny Castilla and Andres Galarraga both have 19. Sosa has a Sosa has a June, yeah. Sosa has a monster, monster June. 
in June, McGuire hits 10, which isn't bad. He gets to 37. Griffey hits 14. He gets to 33. Sosa hits 20. So he hits twice as many as McGuire. So by the end of June, McGuire 37, Sosa 33, Griffey 33. And then as the summer goes on, Griffey kind of trails off a little bit and it becomes a two-person race. But even into the summer, it was not a two-person thing. Griffey was very much a part of it. And I remember seeing those graphics on ESPN when they do them in SportsCenter in the mornings with the paces and everything. It was all three of them well into the summer. And Griffey ended up hitting 56 home runs, which any other year would have been like, wow, he really shook the hell out of that record. Um, yeah, I'm looking at a, at a stretch here in June, a few days against the Phillies. It looks like he hit five home runs in a two-game stretch against the Phillies, or at least a two-day stretch. So, so I don't know if there was... Yeah, I don't know if there was a doubleheader in there, but good Lord. Um, so... And just real quick, at the end of July, it's McGuire 45, Sosa 42, Griffey 41. That's where it's. And then uh, August is kind of a separation. At the end of August, they're both at 55. And Griffey's only at 47. So obviously it's it's a two person race by that point. But for most of the summer, Griffey's right there with them. And you mentioned at the end of September, they're both at 55. On September 1st and September 2nd, McGuire hits two home runs each of those days, from what I can see. And he's at, I mean, I guess by the time they were both at 55 with a month left of the season, it was pretty much, I don't know if it's a foregone conclusion then, because, you know, you can have a horrible month. But I mean, by September 2nd, when he's got 59 home runs, it's a foregone conclusion that unless McGuire gets hurt, he's going to find a way to hit three more home runs this season. And then September 4th, he ties Babe or wait, that was September 4th might've been that's yeah. on September 5th. McGuire hits number 60 against the reds, which ties him with Ruth and brings him to within one of the record um, at the time. Sosa's up at 58. So, you know, it's, it's obviously, it's obviously going to happen at that point. I guess there's a chance they both theoretically could have hit 61 or 62 on the same day in the same game when they were playing each other. Obviously that doesn't happen. Um, The, I mean, before we talk about sort of the end of it, and this is another one where I kind of, I remember it being a big deal. I remember it being a thing people were really into and talking about every day. I was perhaps too young and talking to people who were too young to make any sort of connection between like, oh, this is bringing people back to the game who were still disillusioned by the 94 strike. I don't know how much of that is. They were, I mean, because you can obviously look at numbers and through 95 and even 96, there were people who were pissed off and there were some people who stayed away forever. So obviously this didn't bring them back. But part of me also just wonders, like, after a couple of years where they just kind of like, what am I going to do? Give up baseball forever? Well, that's the hard thing is it's a counterfactual, right? It's, you know, like any number of things Whenever people say, I mean, you saw it even a little bit during COVID. And I mean, not that COVID didn't change a lot of things, but like, you know, people thought that COVID had killed 
live sports or live concerts or whatever. And then, you know, eventually things kind of regress back to where they were. So I think you're exactly right. Who knows? The one thing I'll say is that I think it was the last time that I remember in my lifetime where baseball was really in sort of the conscious conscious consciousness of the everyday American, you know, ladies at church were talking about Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, you know, that type of thing to where it was part of what was going on in the world, the same way that the president is, or, you know, so a, a hit movie or, or that type of thing. It was sort of, that other level of everybody was talking about it, even people who weren't sports fans were picking their favorites, Sosa, McGuire, that part of it was unique. Even if it didn't sort of bring people back to baseball, quote unquote. And from a sports point of view, rare has been the time over the last 30 years where individual baseball players have been the most marketable guys in sports. And McGuire and Sosa, McGuire especially, came really close during that year or two. Yeah, and that's McGuire became a cultural phenomenon. Um, McGuire being, you know, he had been traded from the A's, what, two years earlier? Year um, before, 97. Yeah, 97. He was a big sort of fair-haired white guy who... I don't remember where Mark McGuire's from. Is he from California? Yeah, he's from California. But he's playing for the Cardinals, sort of the Heartlands team, and you know that sort of kind of looking like a muscular Chuck Norris. You know what I mean? Like he very much son was the in, Bat Boy. Yeah, he very much tapped into sort of the illusions or or, or sort of fantasies we tell ourselves about baseball you know like he was almost like a modern day Roy Hobbs in a lot of ways like from the natural where he's like this big strapping guy who's hitting home runs and smiling and you know I remember reading an article at the time or hearing something because like he was divorced but you're like oh well he's got a great relationship with his ex-wife and it was like what the hell does that matter about anything but you know what I mean it was like and at first of all I do I do think he's a legitimately good guy I oh, think, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I actually have some sympathy for him with the steroid stuff because I think I want to end with that stuff. But. I think he legitimately feels bad about what happened, mm-hmm. even if he hasn't always been fully forthcoming. But he was great with the Maris family. He, and the other thing, too, is, you know, fair or not, the other guy had sort of a limited command of the English language. Um, not as not as limited as it would as it would be when he went to testify <laughs> in front of Congress five or six years later. But, you know, and and Sosa gave interviews and he spoke and everything. It wasn't I want to minimize that. But McGuire was so accessible to the press. He was so he was so good at sort of seeming genuine. And like I said, with the Maris family and all that stuff. So, yeah, and it was just the perfect. And here's the other thing, too. And I really do think this matters. Jordan's gone. You know, June of 98, Jordan's going they're looking for the next best thing. Let's be honest. Nike is looking for the next best thing. And that's when you get chicks dig the long ball and all that type of stuff. This was in a lot of ways, you know, let's look for the next big guy to market in sports. 
and it was kind of a perfect storm. Yep, and it, it, the, I think, I'm sure there was a McDonald's thing at some point with Big Mac because that was you know what they called them, or maybe they called them that after the sponsorship. But it was really he was very much out of central casting for this kind of uh, thing. You know, mm-hmm. people kind of it was almost like he'd never been anywhere else, even though he'd been on the A's and been on good teams and been in what probably should have been a tell at the time, been the Bash Brothers with Jose Canseco. Um, So I just kind of want to talk about the doing of it, the subsequent ending of it. And then, you know, it's one of those things. And then we'll talk about the steroids for just a minute, because We've talked about it in the context of the Hall of Fame before. It's the kind of thing I'd have no interest in doing a whole show on because I think it's been done to death. This is the closest we're going to get to it. So I kind of want to, you know, get to that. But so he start I mentioned he starts September, he gets to the three the four home runs. So he's up, he's got 59. Sosa's got 56. Um two game series against the Cubs. He hits on September 7th, he hits a ball. Uh off Mike Morgan of the Cubs to be, hit his 61st home run the next day against the Cubs nationally televised. He's got 61. The Maris family's there. It's his shortest home run of the season. It like just scrapes the wall and gets over. Doesn't it? From what the I six, remember, the 62nd. Yeah. They said it was his shortest home run of the year. Just 341 feet, just over the left field wall. He runs past first base. He almost like as he's rounding the bases, he forgets to touch first base and he has to like just take a step back and touch first base. Um, finishes rounding the bases. They pause the game momentarily, actually more than momentarily. Sosa runs in because they happen to be playing the Cubs. There's pictures of them hugging and I think doing like a fake punch kind of thing that they did when they greeted each other. And, you know, he's it's a storybook moment. It's pictures of him with, um, you know, the Maris family. And after the game, he gives a speech about, you know, the bat and, you know, it's immortalized at the beginning of 61. If, if you've seen that movie. Um, so it really is a, you know, fairy tale breaking of the record. The difference being then there's a month left in the season. Um, Sosa actually ties him at 63 on September 16th. Uh, They're tied at 65 on September 23rd. They're tied at 66 on September 25th. And then in the last several days between September 26th and September 27th, uh, McGuire has a huge series against the Expos and gets to the 70 number where Sosa stays at 66. And that's where they finish the season, each having demolished a record that hadn't been broken in, you know, 37 years. And the interesting thing about it is, and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit when we when we touch on the playoffs, but Sosa's actually on a halfway decent team. He actually uh, makes it to the playoffs. McGuire's on a not so good Cardinal team. But why don't we finish off with the with with this piece first? And I remember that too, because I remember kind of going like, you know, the last two guys who did it were on the 61 Yankees and the 27 Yankees. Um, yeah. Yeah. But um, so they both break the record again the next year. They both break 62 again the next year. Um, Bonds, what is it? Oh, one that Bonds hits the 73 or oh, two. Oh, one. Uh, 
So they both, I think by by then, Roger Maris was like eighth on the list or something like that in that 98 to 0102 period. You know, and it's interesting because around here locally, this came up a little more again last year when Aaron Judge hit the 62nd home run and the Maris, uh, I think it was Roger Maris Jr. made comments. And and my my thought on him specifically in the, they're allowed to feel a little cheated. You know what I mean? Them specifically, if you're Roger Maris's family, I understand feeling like, you know, Mark McGuire kind of lied to you and took advantage of you and and stuff like that. Beyond that, and I'm not saying anything new here, but, you know, there's obviously was a market correction and, and anybody who's listened to any of these kind of knows my thoughts on it, that it was it was fine when it was Maguire and Sosa. And then suddenly it was Barry Bonds, who most people didn't like. And they decided we needed to do these things about these steroids. Clemens, too, to a certain extent. And then A-Rod. And like I said, those are the three. The one, th- those are the three that got the hammer dropped the most on them. And they just happened to be three unlikable guys. Now, that's on them for being unlikable. Bonds was unlikable. Mm-hmm. It's not anybody else's fault that people didn't like Barry Bonds, but they. But anyway, um, the the thing that stinks about the steroids from that point is that record is is out of reach forever now. Like, because you know they've obviously cracked down on the drug testing. Can you think of the kind of year Aaron Judge had last year? Somebody needing to hit twelve more home runs than that to break that record. That's nobody's going. Nobody's going to touch that record. Uh, you know so. Well, I think that was sort of my point, too, was like at the time, it just it didn't feel like it was being bested. It felt like it was just being obliterated. Yeah. So baseball. Obviously, use these guys, they they were happy to. Either look the other way or, you know, whatever you want to say, Um and certainly baseball was hypocritical years later when they made it seem like these guys perpetrated the greatest crime in the history of the sport. Um, do I think these guys acquitted themselves well? And I'm talking in general, McGuire, Sosa Bonds, Rafael Palmero, all these guys. Do I think they necessarily acquitted themselves well in the subsequent years? No, but I also see it from a standpoint of you're a young baseball player. You're taking something that, you know, at various points was in a gray area of legality, both in the laws and in the rules of Major League Baseball. And then suddenly they're called in front of the United States Congress. Yeah, I'm not that surprised they lied, to be honest with you. You know what I mean? Like, I yeah, probably I mean, would have lied. Yeah, I mean, like, once it got to that point, what else were they going to do, right? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, no, yeah, that's, it, that's a fair point. Yeah, I mean, I so and Lance Armstrong was always a thing with me where that like the obviously the, the Tour de France because he tried to go after people for like libel and slander and ruins people ruin people's lives the whole time knowing they were telling the truth and he was lying. I don't really see any evidence and I don't even really see that much evidence. These guys tried to hide it beyond just saying like, oh, no, I don't do that, whatever. Um I guess you could say that's hiding it, but like I 90% am kind of like we've, you know, it was an error. It was a very contained thing. That's what happened in those years. And what I said with the judge record was when judges going for the 62 home runs and some people were saying, 
it's the American League record. And it's like, yeah, technically it's the American League record. It's the Yankee record. Okay. No, you can't say this is the real home run record. You don't get to do that. But you also can at least acknowledge, hey, every other guy who's hit more home runs than 62 did it between 1998 and 2001. They're all guys who are considered very credibly linked or in some cases conclusively to performance enhancing drugs. And you're allowed to at least mention that. That's sort of where I come down on. Yeah, I think me too. I mean, you're allowed to feel it, right? You're allowed to say to yourself when Aaron Judge hits number 62, you're allowed to say, you know, I'm glad he did it because now somebody who has bested the 61 from Roger Maris is not a steroid guy. Yeah, I think it's and it's it, it's disingenuous to be like, oh, look at these people cheering on him hitting the eighth most home runs of all time. It's like that's disingenuous and you know it. Yeah, I agree. I think you got to. I think with the steroid thing, there's too many people who, I mean, there's plenty of people who just condemn it outright and don't want, you know, and we've talked about how I think some of these guys should get in the hall of fame, but there's also almost like a, too much of a backlash where there's people who act like if you have any problem with it whatsoever, it's like, well, you know, it's, it's it, Babe Ruth drank beer or it's like, okay, we get it. Like, and, and, and that's where I agree with you in terms of, I'd almost like to look at it from a way of, Yes, overall, this is a little bit of a dark period for the game. Let's not kill the 12 guys who were the most successful during that period doing what was widely being done at the time. You know what I mean? It's, 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 they got the steroids from what we can tell mostly out of baseball. That's a good thing. Let's not then turn around and say like, oh, and we also need to tar and feather these guys forever. Agreed. All right. Do we want to talk about a couple other things from baseball real quick? I think there's a lot. I think there's a lot of other things to talk about in baseball. All of while this is going on. And I just realized this is a theme in this three year period, although this one's for much different reasons. All of while this is going on, the worst ever defense of a championship is taking place. Oh, but if you God, think about yeah. it, the, the Bulls and the Broncos the next two years are, are very similar, although the Broncos weren't as bad. But um, the Marlins, and I, 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 you probably weren't planning on starting here, but the Marlins, who had won the World Series the year before, kind of a lightning in the bottle thing, sell off, what, their entire team going into 1998? Either going into 1998 or shortly there, after they they were sort of the ultimate one team wonder uh after kind of catching lot lightning in a bottle so they win the 97 world series um here it is immediately november 11th so basically a couple weeks afterwards first thing they trade moises salute to the astros a week later they trade rob nen and devon white then they trade jeff conine and then, uh, you know, some smaller guys leave as as free agents. Uh, early February, they trade out lighter. And then once the season starts, they trade a bunch of guys, but most notably Bobby Bonilla, Charles Johnson and Gary Sheffield, who had been three of the starting players. Now, Charles Johnson actually makes his way back to the Marlins uh a few years later, but sort of three of the starting lineup players of 
the team from the previous year. In that trade, they bring back Mike Piazza, but then they immediately turn him around uh, a week and a half or so later for the Mets. And maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that. But yeah, and and some of the other guys, too, that had been key players on the team. So like Edgar Renteria, who had he had the game winning hit right of that uh, of that World Series. Yes, Renteria? in 97. In 97. Yeah, I believe they just let him leave as a free agent. So it's not even just the fact that they're they're letting these, you know, they 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 start fire selling the team once the season starts. They're also letting guys walk as free agents before the season even starts. And this is another one of those where I have a, me- a memory of it, even at the time where just right away, they just kind of started dismantling this team. Yeah, Johnson, Conine, Bonilla, Alou, White, Sheffield, six guys there from the starting lineup that I just mentioned, all of whom they traded away. They let, um, uh, no, actually, I'm sorry. They actually keep Renteria for the whole 98 season. He's the one guy they keep around, and then he goes to St. Louis after the 98 season. So basically six of the eight guys from their starting lineup, plus Al Leiter, who we mentioned, plus Rob Nen, who'd been their closer. They must, I think, I think it was Kevin Brown. Uh, was he part of the, uh, oh no, Brown leaves as a free agent. He goes to the San Diego Padres and makes it to a second straight World Series. So yeah, they either through free agency or trades basically entirely dismantle the entire team after like four months. And I think I remember reading something even at the time where it was like, it's getting embarrassing for them to every game announce the defending champion Florida Marlins. <laughs> it was like we got to not do this anymore, guys. This is this is clearly yeah. We, we, which one of those which one of those words is least applicable? Champion or defending? <laughs> uh, they finished fifty four and one hundred eight, which was actually brings me to my next point. They finished with the worst record in Florida that year, uh, nine games worse. Then the expansion and also very terrible Tampa Bay Devil Rays. This was the first year of a 30-team Major League Baseball. Um, the Tampa Bay Devil Rays and the Arizona Diamondbacks join uh, the league. It's the first expansion since 93 when the Marlins and Rockies came into the league. Um, as part of balancing the leagues, because they did add Tampa Bay, uh, they shift the Milwaukee Brewers uh, from the National League to the, or excuse me, from the American League to the National League. I believe they offered it to Kansas City first, and Kansas City turned it down. And Milwaukee switches to the NL, um, so I think probably to get rivalries with the Cubs and the Cardinals out of it, where they remain to this day in the National League. So for the next 15 years or so, we had 16 teams in the National League and 14 teams in the American League until they decided to just make interleague play a, a, a more regular occurrence instead of just one month out of the year and shifted the Astros to the AL. But uh, that was sort of the structural changes in the league at this point. And the Diamondbacks are decent pretty early on. They're in the playoffs under Buck Showalter by their second year, by 99. And then they're winning a championship by mm. the following year. So they're sick. They're actually... Uh, only two games better than the than the Rays, the Devil Rays in '98. Rays win 63 games, Diamondbacks win 65. But the Diamondbacks improved by 35 games uh, in the from '98 to '99, 
and end up uh, winning the NL West and and losing the Mets in the first round of the playoffs in 99. Devil Rays in 98, a couple of future Hall of Famers. They got a 40-year-old Wade Boggs, who hits 280 in 123 games. And the following year, he actually hits gets his 3,000th hit, a home run for the Devil Rays in 99. And then they also have Fred McGriff, who plays 151 games at first base. So some... You know, some talent, aging talent, though it may be for the Diamondbacks uh, or for I'm sorry, for the Devil Rays. But unlike the D-backs who become a, a powerhouse pretty quickly, the Devil Rays will basically languish for an entire decade before they finally snip the postseason in 2008. And then one additional thing I wanted to get to before we move on. Um, this was when Cal Ripken's streak ended, I believe, in September of 98. Um yeah. And I remember watching this game live, actually. We were watching, and for reasons we'll probably explain in a few minutes, it was uh, fun to make a point to watch them every night. But they were playing the Yankees uh, at Camden Yards. And, you know, the game comes on, and I, they, I'm sure they talked about it on the pregame, and we just weren't watching it on the pregame, but we turned the game on MSG, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. And they were like, big news as we come on the air at 7 o'clock, and they showed Cal Ripken out. Or is they, who, who was the manager of the Orioles in 98? I think it was still Davey Johnson, wasn't it? So let's say it was Davey Johnson. They show him and uh, Tory exchanging lineups and Johnson, you know, they kind of stand there for a few more uh, moments. And the reason was that for the first time in, you know, 16 years or whatever it was, uh, Cal Ripken was not in the starting lineup, made the decision to end his streak that day. And it was not Davey Johnson. Davey Johnson, this is typical Davey Johnson, takes the team to two straight ALCSs in his two years as manager, 96 and 97, then promptly wears out his welcome and is gone by 98. We did a lot of uh, 90s Orioles stuff with uh, Andrew's friend Mike uh, about two years ago. Uh, So check those out on some episodes on the Orioles of the 90s. But I I wonder if Ripken was kind of ready for the streak to end because for the first time in a few years, the team, the Orioles were not, uh, not a contender, not a playoff team. Apparently, he originally had wanted to end it on the road in their last series of the season at Fenway Park, and somebody talked him in, and they said, "No, you got to end this at home. You got to end this in Baltimore." So that is what he what he ends up doing. He sticks around for a few more years, but um, but is you know that this the streak is no more. What twenty six thirty two? I think is the final number. I want to say sounds sounds right. Yeah. Um. So that happens. Um, we're obviously going to talk a little about the Yankees before the playoffs. Um, was there anything else you wanted to touch on before that? couple more quick things. This is the first year that the Cubs do not have Harry Carey as their broadcaster. He passes away just prior to the 1998 season. Another Cubs note uh, in May, a rookie, Kerry Wood, I believe he's a rookie, uh, strikes out 20 pit 20 players in a game and he becomes sort of a the phenom pitcher of 1998 actually ends up and 98 is his rookie year actually ends up missing the entire 99 season and then comes back and pitches several years with the Cubs and then bounces around the majors a little bit including a a stint with the Yankees but he was a phenom rookie of the year in 98 he was a real phenom in 98 and he was never really the same pitcher he was scored of everybody thought he was a young Clemens and he has a decent career he's, he doesn't have a doesn't have a he's not a bust by any means but he's not not nearly what anybody thought he would be when he was having this crazy rookie season in 1998 couple of trades this is when Mike Piazza comes to the Mets 
the Dodgers trade him to the Marlins as part of the aforementioned Marlins fire sale, but it's very much assumed that he's not going to last very long and he doesn't. He's only there for about, I think, a week, uh, 10 days, two weeks, ends up being traded to the Mets and is the anchor of their playoff teams, those powerhouse uh, Met teams that everybody, all the Met fans fall in love with, like kind of give Met fans something to cheer about for the first time in over a decade in 99, 2000, they make the World Series, you know, go on a decent run after 9-11 in 2001. So Mike Piazza, who's best known for his years as the Met, as the Met, traded from the Florida Marlins after two weeks with the team in the summer of 1998. Another trade, uh, July 31st, the Mariners trade uh, Randy Johnson to the Houston Astros. And Johnson would actually end up leaving them as a free agent after the 98 season and signing with the Diamondbacks, and then he ends up winning, what, four Cy Young Awards in a row. But it's the beginning of the selling off of that Mariner team that had made the playoffs in 95, got on that incredible run, beat the Yankees in that epic five-game series, made the playoffs again in 97. They trade Johnson in 98. Griffey leaves at the end of the 99 season. A-Rod leaves as a free agent, signs with Texas at the end of the 2000 season. And they they have that amazing year in 2001 <laughs> with Ichiro. But it's sort of the, that that whole Mariner team, especially that Johnson, Griffey, A-Rod nucleus kind of falls apart before they get to realize their full potential. And the, tr- the trade deadline transaction sending Randy Johnson to Houston is is the beginning of the end for that group. And did Houston end up doing anything special that year? I mean, they obviously made that move with it, with him being, you know, with a, oh, they won 102 games that year. Jeez, I didn't realize that. But then they lost in four to the uh, Padres in the playoffs, which we'll talk about. But yeah, uh, Padres, not the best team in the National League that year by any, by any stretch of the imagination. I would also note that, uh, first of all, the Mets almost make the playoffs before sort of uh, faltering down the stretch. Uh, the Giants and Cubs are both 89 and 73, and the Mets finished a game back in the wild card with eight at 88 and 74. The Cubs defeat the Giants in a one-game playoff for the wild card. Steve Traxel, same guy who had given up Mark McGuire's 62nd home run, goes six and a third scoreless innings. Barry Bonds goes 0 for 4 in the playoff game, and the Cubs make it to the uh what's only what, like I guess the fourth ever. National League wild card. Atlanta Braves have one of their best regular seasons. This might actually be the best regular season in Braves history. They win 106 games, but lose to San Diego in the NLCS uh, four to two. And San Diego beats two teams with a combined 208 wins in the their two rounds of the NL playoffs before they get they get smacked pretty good by the Yankees in the World Series. And you know how I've learned it's interesting. I because you know, I they played the Yankees in the World Series in 96 and 99. I knew they were there a bunch in the early 90s. They won in 95. My friend Mike, who's a country music fan, sent me a song that some some guy wrote and sang and whatever a few years ago. And it's called 98 Braves. And he's like talking about this girl, and he's saying, like, it's like a girl where it was like He's like describing the Braves and he's saying like if you and I were like uh, uh, 
a team would be the 98 Braves where it was like everything was working great and then it just like didn't come together. And it was just I, that's how I was like, I was like, why the 98 Braves? Like I would think like the 96 Braves. And that's how I looked it up. I'm like, oh, the 98 Braves won like 106 games. That's why he was bringing that up. But mm. um, yeah, it's funny. Just within the last few months, I that was put on my radar. So. All right. So why don't we given just, you know, how long we this is going and how long we knew it would go, frankly. I don't know. I mean, the 98 playoffs, other than the fact we talked about the Braves losing, but do we really need to touch on anything big other than the Yankees as far as the 98 playoffs are concerned? No, I mean, so you get uh, in the first round, uh, Cleveland beats Boston in four games. Boston gets the wild card as the other American League series. The NL, both first two rounds, kind of uh, not that. You know, surprising, I guess, the fact that San Diego wins is a minor upset, but San Diego won 98 games that year. They beat Houston, uh, you know, no five game series there. We talked about the NLCS. So, yeah, the American League, I guess, is now where we go back and and talk about the 98 Yankees um, and then uh, all the way through. One thing I would just say is this this Padre team's got a decent lineup. Ken Caminiti. uh had been MVP a couple years previously gets 29 home runs uh, career year from Greg Vaughn that we mentioned with 50 home runs. Tony Gwynn is 38 years of age. So he he's getting older, but he still hits 321 best on the team. They got a hall of fame closer in Trevor Hoffman who has 53 saves, which I'd have to imagine that's, I mean, I guess Rivera might've been close that year, but uh, now 53 saves for Hoffman is best in all of baseball. So Kevin Brown, 18 and seven. So they're a one-year wonder, although they'd been in the playoffs a couple times in the in the 90s. I know they were in there in 96, but they're still a good team, the 98 Padres. They're just, they're not going to be any match from the 98 Yankees. So. And Hoffman, that 53 saves, by the way, is still tied for sixth all time, it looks like. Great. Mm-hmm. Uh, K-Rod, Francisco Rodriguez still has the most with 62 in 2008. And then a few guys at 57, including Edwin Diaz five years ago. But um, so I guess we go back to the beginning with the 98 Yankees. Um, this is the T. So they won in 96. And, you know, we've talked about the team they had that year being a little different. You can listen to our 96 Yankees episode. The 97 team was more in line with the 96 team in terms of the guys that were making up the core of the team. Um, they still had they still had Boggs. They still had Cecil Fielder. They still had. Uh, they still had, um, you know, Mariano Duncan came back, although he got traded midseason. They, they still had, uh, you know, Strawberry was still expected to play a big role. They lost Wetland before 97, John Wetland, who'd been the closer. Jimmy Key left, but you're right. They they were bringing back basically the same core, or not just core, but just basically the same team with a few exceptions in 97. Yeah, so 98, they do some uh, do some things in the offseason. Um, David Wells is brought in. It's almost like a trade between him and Jimmy Key because Jimmy Key goes to well, that was Baltimore. before that was before the '97 season. Oh, was it up before '97? Yeah, that was before '97. Wells was there in '97. Okay, I just spilled my beer all over the place, so I'm distracted. Um, Do you need a minute or? Yeah, let me just get a paper towel and clean it up. Is you sure. okay with that? Yeah, of course. So we were talking about the um, 
Yankees the, off season. Yeah, the Yankees off season. So, yeah, so the 97 team was basically the same team. They actually are better in 97. I think what 96 they win 92 games. And then in 97 they go up to 96 96 games, but it's the wild card to the aforementioned Baltimore Orioles. Losing five to Cleveland in the first round. Cleveland goes on to almost win a World Series against the Marlins in 97. And the Yankees going into 98 is when they really start to make some changes. They it, the core is still there, but they they let Boggs and Hayes walk at third base. They signed Scott Brocious. They bring in Chuck Knobloch, who'd been a star second baseman and a gold glover, believe it or not, despite his later offensive woes at at second base. And, you know, they start to shore up the bullpen. I mean, the bullpen's basically the same, I guess. You know, Nelson, Jeff Nelson had been there. Mike Stanton had come to the team in 97. But those couple of changes, Chili Davis is the other big one. Chad Curtis comes in from the year before. So some of the guys, not all, but some of the guys who had sort of been key players on that 96 team, Boggs, Hayes, Fielder, they don't know what they're going to get from Strawberry, although they end up getting a decent year from Strawberry in 98. It's sort of a different team in some slightly subtle ways. And that 98 team ends up being basically the same team with some changes and one big change that's that that they carry through for the next four years when they make it to the World Series every four every year and win three of them. And also in 98, um, Posada takes over, you know, the balance of power shifts enough where Posada is really the starting catcher at this point and uh, Girardi's the backup. Now, Girardi still appears in plenty of games. He appears in 78 games. Posada appears in 111. So if you do the math on that, obviously, you know, that that's more than 162 games with subs and stuff. But, you know, just Posada has 409 plate appearances. Girardi 279, just to give you a sense of the, yeah. you know, the, uh, you know, the, the split there. Um, so that's sort of the, uh, the the changes from a lineup standpoint, from a pitching standpoint, you know, the top three remain the same as it had in years past. Pettit, Wells, who had been there the year before, Cone. Um, I, I think Ramiro Mendoza made a bunch of starts that year. It looks like he made how many starts did he end up making that year? It says he, he, he made 14 starts, so he was in the in the rotation a good point of the part of that year, but Hideki Arabu, uh, was he had come up the year before, right, and been pretty Correct. good, and then this was his first full year. This was his first full year, and he actually wasn't as bad as people no. might think it was. In fact, I think he was pitcher of the month in like June, maybe on the season. You, he goes. You know that for the same. You know that for the same reason I know that, which is that we saw him on his first start in July, and he got his butt kicked. Oh, that's right. That was that Philly game, right? <laughs> yeah. But but yes, he was like the pitcher of the American League pitcher of the month in June or whatever. 13 to 9, uh 4.06 ERA. He's clearly the number 4 starter and then midway through the season David Cohn gets bit by his mother's little dog 
and they have to bring up Orlando Hernandez to make a start. And Hernandez goes 12 and four with a 3.13 ERA. And so from then on, Arabu is clearly the five starter. But this is, um, you know, th- this is not a bad year for Arabu. He gets bad the following year. 99 is when Hideki Arabu is not not very good. He's he's 11 and seven. His ERA is 4.84. But by the end of the season, he's clearly, you know, he's lost it. And then he kind of kicks around with the Expos for a couple of years before, you know, his life tragically ends a couple of years, you know, several years later. But Yankees start off one and four on a West Coast trip. Everybody thinks <laughs> Tory's in trouble. What's going to happen? But they write the ship. They end up with a hundred and fourteen and forty eight record. They win the American League East by twenty two games over the wild card Boston Red Sox. David Cohn has maybe his best season. He finishes with a twenty and seven record. He well, it is his best year. It might be ninety four with Kansas City when he wins the Cy Young award in an abbreviated season, but David Cohn, 20 game winner, only one of only two 20 game win seasons in his entire career. The other was 10 years earlier with the Mets in 1988, his 20 wins leads all of major league baseball for the 1998 season. He finishes uh, fourth in Cy Young voting. The, Pettit goes 16 and 11. David Wells in his second year with the team, 18 and four, and also pitches a perfect game against the Minnesota Twins in uh, May of 1998. Nothing overly spectacular as far as the offense is concerned. Bernie Williams wins a batting title with a 339 average. But other than that, it's just sort of solid but unspectacular. The only other guy, two guys have triple-digit RBIs. Paul O'Neill, 116. Tino Martinez, who'd had a monster year before. He hit, what, 50 home runs in 97. Leads a team with 123 RBIs. Jeter, in his third year as a pro, hits 324. And I believe, is this Jeter's... I want to say 98 is Jeter's first... It's Jeter's first All-Star game. Jeter finishes third in MVP voting. Juan Gonzalez is the MVP of the American League. Daryl Strawberry at 36 years of age plays in 101 games, uh, 24 home runs, one, two, three, four Yankees hit over 20 home runs, but nobody hits over 30. Tino Martinez is in the lead with 28. It's just in a season in baseball where so many guys especially in the National League, but Griffey, too, are putting up just astronomical offensive numbers. The best team in a generation and one of the best teams of all time is really kind of a pitching defense. They hit. Nobody says they don't hit, but they're not a power hitting team. It is a very, very strange team to be such a dominant team in a season where big home run hitters were the theme. And I think when you said they hit, that's the thing. Everybody hit, you know, you, I'm looking at what was their sort of 
conglomerate, you know, wh- whatever the aggregate is the word I was looking for starting lineup. And, you know, the, the lowest guy on the, in terms of batting average on the team, you know, in that starting lineup as it reloads on me here, if you want to say the left fielder would have been Chad Curtis, who I think probably hit towards the bottom of the lineup. He hit 243 and had a 360 or 355 on base percentage. And this was the first, this was the team where walking was just everybody walked a ton. There was not a guy of their top 10 who had less than 45 walks on the season. And you look at guys like Tino at 61, Knobloch 76, Jeter and Brocious both in the 50s. Chad Curtis walked 75 times at the bottom of the order. And you know they were not trying to walk Chad Curtis or pitch around Chad Curtis. The Yankees absolutely refused to swing at pitches out of the strikes on that year. The other interesting thing about this team is unlike in 96, where in 96, you kind of had a, more of a platoon. You know, you had Hayes and Boggs at third. You had Fielder and Tino at first base, although Fielder obviously DH'd some as well. The lineup, other than in left field, it's pretty much the same thing. It's Posada, well, Posada and Girardi, I guess, but Tino, Knobloch, Jeter, Brocious, Bernie, O'Neill. They're basically throwing those six guys out, absent an injury. They're throwing those guys out there basically every every game. Chili Davis uh, is injured for much of the season, so Strawberry gets, gets some at-bats at DH, as does Tim Raines. The left field is sort of this platoon. Chad Curtis is the main left fielder during the regular season, but then by the playoffs, they've got two rookies. They've got Ricky Leday, who starts a couple games in the World Series, I believe. Let me let me let me see Ricky Leday because I think he. What is what does Leday do? He definitely he he definitely he yeah he plays in he starts three games in the. uh in the world series, which is just crazy for a guy who was a, a rookie. And then they also have, I'm sorry. No, he actually starts. He, he, no, yeah. Three Lede starts three of the four Yankee world series games in left field over Curtis over Reigns, and over another guy in Shane Spencer, who was this September phenom who hits 10 home runs in 27 games Another guy who never really lives up to his potential afterwards. He's sort of the offensive Kerry Wood of 1998. But there's there's just so many fun stories on this 98 Yankees team. The only sort of sad note is that just as the playoffs are getting started, Daryl Strawberry is diagnosed with, I believe it was colon cancer, right? That's yeah, I believe it said that sounds right. He diagnosed with colon cancer, goes into treatment, misses the whole postseason, and then there's other drug issues. He really only has like two months left in his career. He gets suspended for drugs again at the beginning of the 99 season, comes back, is with them for the stretch run in 99, and then um, has another drug issue. And then his career is essentially over. As far as the on the field in the postseason, not a ton of drama for this Yankee team. The closest that they come is ALCS against the aforementioned Cleveland Indians, where they win game one, lose game two, four to one in extra innings, lose game three to six to one behind a 
great pitching performance by Bartolo Colon for Cleveland <laughs> and end up on the road down two to one facing Doc Gooden, uh, the, you know, the former Yankee as the starting pitcher for the, for the Cleveland Indians and their season is in trouble, but they get El Duque Hernandez in his uh, first ever postseason experience, uh, first ever postseason experience appearance they hadn't needed him in the uh, first round against texas because it had been a three-game sweep he pitches a 4-0 shutout and then the yankees win game five they win game six and then they go on and sweep the the san diego padres but they do a little bit have their their backs against the wall in in uh in going into game four and then the other thing that happens is the uh the famous uh the Chuck knob block play in, in game two of that series where the, let, let me pull up the exact descriptions. Yeah. I don't want to, um, I don't want to, uh, no. I don't want to short and short, short change it. And while you're going over that, just remember, you know, in the context of 1998, the Indians had won the pennant in 97. They'd won the pennant in 95. They'd eliminated the Yankees in 97. Obviously the Yankees won the world series in 96, but you know, the Yankees being down two to one to this good Cleveland team was a little bit surprising because of how dominant the Yankees regular season had been. But also up to that point, a lot of the teams historically that had these really crooked win total numbers, the 54 Indians, uh, they didn't always win World Series. So it was not a foregone conclusion, although it was in the first round and then in this round. And then in the next round, the Yankees, you know, they won game four, I think, by two runs. They they very easily could have lost this series, although, you know, clearly they were the better team overall. Game four, four to nothing shutout. Uh, oh, OK. Game five was a two run game. So. Uh, 98 American League Championship Series uh, in the 12th inning, the scores tied one to one. Travis Fryman bunted. Knobloch covers first base uh, on the bunt. Uh, Jeff Nelson, the pitcher, his throw hits Fryman and rolls away. Instead of retrieving the ball, Knobloch argues with the first base umpire that interference should be called. Indians base runner Enrique Wilson, another future Yankee, was able to score from first base, giving Cleveland the lead in an eventual four to one victory. New York Daily knows called news called him a blockhead, you know, B-L-A-U-C-H <laughs> head. Using, you know, a play on words with his last name, David Cohn, who had done something very similar when he'd been with the Mets in the 1980s, when he'd been on the mound and was arguing with the umpire while the base runners rounded the bases, sort of comes up to Knobloch the next day. He's like, you have to own this. You can't make excuses. And the Yankees rally. They they lose game three that, you know, they don't rally right away, but then they win game four, five, six. And then they sweep the San Diego Padres in the World Series. That 98 World Series is, is not really competitive. I want to talk a little bit real quick about game one, but it's it's really not a very competitive series. Yeah, the thing that always stands out to me about 98 is how weird it was seeing them celebrate. Like, I think the last ball was a, a ground ball to Brocious. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the old Jack Murphy Stadium. And you see the Yankees jumping in the air. And in 96, they won at home. In 99, they won at home, I believe, because it was a four-game sweep that started in Atlanta. And in 2000, they won in Shea. So, you know, New York. 
but in 98 you see like the jump up and there's just palm trees in the background and it just always seemed very weird so i have to tell a little bit of a story here about this game one yeah, I actually have two stories about it. Yankees, uh, Nate, they, they're they're uh, they're in New York against the Padres. Uh, David Wells, who actually was grew up in San Diego, is on the mound, and the Yankees go down five to two going into the sixth inning, going into the seventh inning, as a matter of fact. And the two guys that have really been struggling are Knobloch and Tino Martinez. And there was a um, there was a, a minister at our church who Pastor Ward, who was a big Yankee fan. And I remember after church that day, game one was on a on a world on a Sunday. And he says, hey, here's what I think needs to happen tonight. He says the Yankees need to in the first inning, Knobloch needs to hit a home run. Then they need to load the bases. And Tino Martinez needs to hit a home run. And. They. That'll be it. It'll get those two guys out of their slump and the Yankees will be on their way to winning. That's not exactly what happens, but it does happen that in the seventh inning of that game, that with the Yankees down five to two, Knobloch hits a three run home run to tie the game at five. And then the bases do then get loaded right after that and Tino Martinez hits a home run off Mark Langston to cap a seven run inning give the Yankees what at the time is a nine to five lead they go on to win the game nine to six and uh the the Padres in a lot of ways never really threatened the rest of the series and I remember that the pastor pastor Ward at our church saying to me the following week he was like you know I I called it I told you I told you exactly what would happen so that's one of my stories. The other story that I have is that a former guest of ours on the Hello World Sports cast, my my freshman year roommate, Ben Meyer Abbott, who was on to talk about uh, baseball simulation games a few years back. When I first met him my freshman year, he was a Padre fan from San Diego. The first thing that he said to me was, hey, do you remember in 98? with the game tied in game one of the world series. And Mark Langston throws a two, two pitch to Tino Martinez right down the damn middle. And Richie Garcia calls it a ball. And then on the next, next pitch, Tino Martinez hits a home run and the Padres would have been out of that inning. If Garcia called it a strike to this day, there are Padres fans who swear that that whole series would have been different if rich garcia had called the ball a strike and i couldn't agree more that it would not have been every any different it also didn't necessarily help that richie garcia was the same guy who two years earlier in right field had made that terrible call with tony tarasco and the orioles and the jeffrey meyer fan interference but you're right you can't argue that a 114 win team would not have won a world series that they swept just because of one uh one bad call, but I always, I always have sort of two, two stories that, that kind of warm my heart about that 98 game one and the 98 Yankees. They're not my favorite team of that era. I think we, we did an episode on the 96 Yankees and they definitely hold a special place in my heart. But as far as just sheer wire to wire dominance, you can't beat that 98 team. And there's some fun in that too. I there's, agree. there's, and I, I'm a little too young to really have been watching the ins and outs of that team every, you know, every day, Obviously, the playoffs, um, but 
there's something to be said for a team that just beats the crap out of people every night and is a, is a machine. So, you know, you maybe don't have the great enduring memories that you do with a team that has to scratch a claw, but it can be fun too in its own way. <laughs> All right. So we always want to close with football, but before that, uh, we want to kind of do the uh, sort of the, the bits and pieces of some things uh, that were going on in sports in 98. Uh, I have a couple things uh, that maybe I'll get it started and then I'll turn it over to you, Andrew. The, uh, the 98 Olympics were held in mm-hmm. Nagano, Japan. And it is, uh, I, I, there was not a lot from this Olympics that I found. I did some research and couldn't find anything that was particularly interesting. A couple things that I found, it was the debut of snowboarding in the Olympics. First that. time, First time snowboarding, first time snowboarding was an Olympic event. And then the other thing I had was there was a gentleman by the name of uh, Philip Boyt who competed in cross country skiing. Do you know what was so interesting about him? No, he was the first Kenyan winter Olympian. Interesting. So the the snow. The snowboarding thing, by the way, would be, and we're not the right people for this. And this podcast is going to go into the wee hours of the morning as it is. Um, there is something to be said for the significance of that in that it was a major crossover from the X games kind of sports, the winter yeah. sports, the half pipe into the Olympics to the point where now there's a bunch of those. It's not remarkable, but that was seen as a significant thing at the time. Um, sort of the Gen X transfer into the, the Olympics and the mainstream. When you talk about winter, Winter Olympics figure skating is is obviously the thing most people talk about. Uh, Tara Lipinski won the gold medal in the women's figure skating. Michelle Kwan won the silver. The uh, U.S. women's hockey team won the gold medal for the first time. This was the first in the men's hockey. It was the first. Um, uh, it was the first uh, world. Uh, excuse me, Olympics to utilize professional athletes for the hockey. 92, the dream team and basketball was the first time to do that. I guess they didn't do it in 1994 in the Winter Olympics, but in 1998, they did. Did they take that gap in the season like they always do these days? This was the first time they did that. First time yeah. they did that. Um, and I was, I got a couple of things confused because the men's U.S. World Cup team also played horrible, but the Olympic hockey team uh, played very poorly and for good measure decided to trash their dorm rooms in the Olympic village, uh, used fire extinguishers all over the place. Um, you know, really just, uh, did not leave a good impression for Americans and especially this hockey team. In addition to playing horribly, the Czech Republic won the gold in the Olympic hockey. You may have found, I I didn't realize there was a world cup. This was, this was Brazil, right? In 98 that won the world cup. The 98 world cup was held in France. Uh, oh, and it was, it was France one, that won it, I think. They beat Brazil three to nothing in the finals. The U.S. finished 32nd out of 32nd after having made it to the knockout stage in 1994 uh, while the U.S. was the host of the World Cup in 1994. In 1998, they finished last in their group and last overall based on goal differential or whatever. There was a very interesting, and this is where I was getting this and the U.S. men's hockey team confused. There was a very interesting controversy where U.S. soccer coach for in coming up with the lineup of the roster for the World Cup team, U.S. soccer coach Steve Sampson uh, dropped the the captain of the team 
uh, John Harks from the roster. Uh, and the reason speculated for a long time was that he was having an affair with the wife of one of his teammates, Eric Wynalda. He's denied this for a long time. You know, there was a big controversy when he was cut from the team. There was controversy about what happened because they didn't really talk about it at the time. Years later, it appears this article is from 2010. So even then was 12 years down the line and 12 years ago now, or 13 years ago now. But uh, there was controversy surrounding the U.S. team. And at the time, it was seen as a major step back for the interests of United States soccer, where... uh, you know, 94 had been sort of the coming out party for that. We hosted the World Cup. The U.S. did well by their standards at the time. And then in this, they finished, they play, perform horribly. They finished last. And I think that's why in, in 1999, when uh, the women won, that was seen as kind of a, a, a big deal, especially how after how badly the men had played in 98 in the World Cup. But France wins it on their home soil, you know, overall is this story. And it was their first ever World Cup championship. In fact, I think it was their first ever appearance in the finals. They had hosted it once before in 1938 and had lost to, um, or they, they had not, Italy had won it in 38, and that was the last World Cup for 12 years. Teams had won in their home country before. In fact, the very first world cup was in 1930 and Uruguay was the, was the winner of that one. And uh, some other teams had done it. It looks like uh, England did it in 1966, West Germany in 74, Argentina in 78. So it was not uncommon for a team to win on its home soil, but France not only had never won on its home soil they'd never won at all so that's that's kind of a pretty cool moment for a a team that had been involved in the world cup for the very beginning for you know basically a quarter century to win win it for the first time on their home soil. that's a pretty cool pretty cool story yep and then some of these other ones i'll go through a little faster uh tennis pete sampras won wimbledon we're still very much in the pete sampras era yana novotna won the women's uh side in wimbledon the u.s open Patrick Rafter won for the men. Martina Hingis won for the women. She also won the Australian Open later in the year. In golf, Marco Mira won the Masters. Um, Tour de France, this was the last year before Lance Armstrong won seven straight. And let me tell you how confusing that was to try to look that up. Because I went to the Tour de France thing, and if you're not thinking about it right away... It looks like it was not contested for seven straight years. (laughs) The the table doesn't say Lance Armstrong, whatever. It's just a dash. Like when you look at the World Cups and there weren't any because of World War II. So I was like, what did they, the Tour de France didn't go away. Like when, and then I realized what happened. So this was the last year before that. I thought this would have been the first year of that. Um, In auto racing, Eddie Cheever won the Indy 500. More significantly, Dale Earnhardt won the Daytona 500 for the first time. First and only. Yes, this was seen as a huge, this was sort of the race that eluded him for years and years and years and years. I I guess he'd been close a few times. Uh, He ends up winning this a little anticlimactically. It's under a a checkered flag that he Mm -hmm. wins it, but he wins it. It's the big moment. And, you know, you can't help but think that three years later, this was the same track and race that, that ended his life. But he did win it in 98 for the first time. There's an author named Lee Montville, who is a really good 
sports author. He wrote a really good Babe Ruth book, wrote Ted Williams book, uh, wrote a really good book about the 1969 NBA finals with the Lakers and the Celtics. And he wrote a Dale Earnhardt book and, and I own no auto racing books, but I picked this one up a couple of years ago just because I like his work. And Earnhardt mm-hmm. has always been sort of a fascinating figure to me, even though auto racing NASCAR is far from a sport that I'm a fan of. And he writes in this book with Earnhardt that this like, and he doesn't use this, but it's it's an analogy that you and I have used in the past. Earnhardt with this Daytona win kind of becomes like the Hulk Hogan of racing, where if you go to somebody and you say, name a race car driver, they don't know anything about anything. They're going to say mm. Dale Earnhardt. He kind of became that after winning this Daytona. He becomes a part of not just the, the sports consciousness, but the American consciousness. So if Earnhardt's a fascinating figure, again, not a NASCAR fan. I'm not a NASCAR fan, but Earnhardt is a very fascinating figure. And the fact that maybe the greatest driver of all time wins the most important race of all time in 98, that, that that's a big deal. Absolutely. Um, in horse racing, this was one of those years where uh, a horse won. And I felt like this, the, the math doesn't, the history books don't back me up on this. I felt like as a kid, there was like a six year period where this happened five times, but this was definitely one of those years where real quiet won the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness and then was nosed out on the Belmont had the lead ended up getting nosed out by a horse named victory Gallup. So we were very close to having the first triple crown winner in what would have been at that point, 20 years, uh, cause affirmed one in 78, but Vic, real quiet is edged out by victory Gallup in 98. And it did happen again the following year in yep. 99 with charismatic charismatic. Yeah. Boxing. The thing I thought was in 98 that we'd have plenty of time to talk about or that I'd want to spend some time talking about actually wasn't until 99, which is probably a good thing. Um, what was that? Lennox was that Lewis- Holyfield Lewis? Holyfield Lewis draw Lennox Lewis is the recognized heavyweight champion in 1998. Obviously we're into the split belt era. Uh, He fights twice in 1998, not very, you know, significant fights. Did did somebody get like really fat? Is that what happened? What? Oh, the split belt era. That'd be the split pants era. Um, That was when, that was when George Foreman had the title. (laughs) Um, Incidentally, we do a really we do a pretty deep dive into that Holyfield Lewis mm -hmm. fight in one of our very first episodes. I know that's 99, not 98. One of our very first episodes on the history of the World Heavyweight Championship. So check that out if you want to hear more about that. So he fights twice that year. Shannon Briggs and Zeljko Maravik. Um, Neither, you know, neither fight really remarkable from a historical standpoint. Most of the articles I saw talked about how this was the year where. Oscar De La Hoya and Roy Jones Jr. kind of went back and forth on who was the best pound for pound boxer in the world. Unfortunately, they were several weight classes apart, so there was no chance they were ever going to actually fight each other. But both of them fought several times um, in 98 It was sort of their heyday. Um, Jones Jr. especially, I guess, I guess both of them equally. And then Mike Tyson sort of on the periphery in late 1998, he, uh, resumes his boxing career after fulfilling some important obligations in the beginning of 1998 but he uh he fulfills his his boxing or he he makes yet another return to the boxing ring in 1998 uh i guess he had to get some you know licenses reinstated and things like that all right before we get to football do you want to 
uh, give us a little rundown of the world of wrestling. You usually do this, and it's much earlier. This this is probably a little yes, bit of a it, different recap than <laughs> when we did '86. It was a good one to do. This is another good one. I will keep it brief for a variety of reasons. Um, 1998, one of the most significant years in professional wrestling, really ever, but definitely in the last 40 or 50 years. We are at the height of what's called the Monday Night Wars between WWF and WCW. We go into 1998. WCW is is firmly the number one company in the country. Uh, Hulk Hogan, the NWO, Sting. This is the year that sees the absolute... We talked before about guys like Dale Earnhardt and Mark McGuire shooting into the public consciousness. This happened this year in a huge way for Stone Cold Steve Austin uh, with the WWF. He wins the WWF title at WrestleMania 14 in Boston in March. Um and becomes really a pop culture figure, um, you know, MTV people who didn't know much about wrestling since Hulk Hogan. Some of them would still go, Oh, what about the stone cold guy? That kind of thing. Um, the WWF pulls ahead in mid 1998 in sort of the horse race with WCW by the end of 1998, they are firmly entrenched. Um, and then just two more big moments, uh, in WCW Goldberg streak, uh, begins and actually ends too, but uh, that is see you know that's sort of the dominant story there, and then sort of one of the most famous matches of all time, for better or worse, one of the most famous matches of all time in June of 1998, Mankind and the Undertaker, uh, Hell in a Cell, where Mick Foley, Mankind is is thrown off and through the cell, and uh, is quite the experience. So a huge year for wrestling from a. Uh, sort of pop culture standpoint, it is very, very popular. Stone Cold Steve Austin in particular. And um, we're in the the biggest sort of wrestling boom that we've been in since the late 80s with Hulk Hogan. Yeah. So because I was a fan up until like 93 and I didn't get into it during this time period. I didn't really start watching wrestling again until like 2007, 2008. But 98 was when I remember it kind of being something that a lot of people were talking about again. So mm-hmm. this was it, it definitely it skyrocketed. Yeah, and and then that continued for another couple of years, but uh, ninety eight was definitely a a very unique year. But um, I know that's not what people listen to this for, and I honestly couldn't do it justice in five minutes. So hopefully we uh, we just covered that as as well as we could before we get into football. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so so real quick, uh, I know we probably want to close with the NFL because that's really our area of expertise, but. 98, I think the big thing is that Tennessee Volunteers, despite uh, Peyton Manning going pro the year before, win it all with uh, what T Martin at quarterback. Yes. And I, I gotta be honest, this one, um, oddly, I have a fond memory of because I, 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 I cannot remember what happened or for whatever reason, but in sometime maybe 96 era, Tennessee must've been on CBS a few Saturdays in a row. And I just kind of decided I was a Tennessee volunteers football fan. And that was a Peyton Manning was the quarterback. And I will be honest, it did not last very long. It lasted maybe a year after this, but you had a jersey. I remember I had a Peyton Manning jersey, a Tennessee jersey. I still might somewhere. I would long ago have stopped fitting me. Um, but I remember, I remember Peerless Price was on the team with Peyton Manning, but I remember he left and T Martin takes over a quarterback. And, and the big thing with Peyton Manning, which continued for a while in the pros, was in college, it was he couldn't beat Florida. And they had good teams, but they couldn't beat Florida in the SEC. And finally, in 98, with a you know quarterback of much less distinction, they win the national championship. This is also the first year of the BCS championship game. You know, there'd been some 
germinations of that in the 80s and 90s where they tried to get the number one and two team to play each other but you had to you know there was the bowl alliance there was the bowl coalition but you had to can you get the rose bowl to buy in can you get this conference to buy in can what about notre dame this what about the rose bowl game for 15 years people killed the bcs and they had a good point but the thing i would always say is you know this was better than what used to happen where well, the top two teams in the country aren't going to play each other because they're committed to playing in the Sugar Bowl and the Cotton Bowl, respectively. Yeah, this was better. This was better than the alternative. Now, what they have now is better, and you know, won't get it. But so this was the first year of the BCS championship game won by Tennessee over Florida State. The other college football things you have to talk about uh, from 1998 is Ricky Williams. Um, Ricky Williams runs away with the Heisman. He has. Uh, numbers at texas that are really out of this world unbelievable i'm going to try and pull them up real quick it actually wasn't his last year at texas i believe i think he played one more year at no this uh, this is this is his last year okay okay so yeah because that would be the 99 draft would have been when he was drafted that's right that was when Uh, ditka traded his whole team to be able to draft him with new orleans so in in 1998 Oh, that's not not Ricky Waters, Ricky Williams. Let's just say he had a really I ha- good year. I have it yeah, right. You got it. <laughs> Eleven games, three hundred and sixty-one carries, two thousand one hundred and twenty-four yards. So that's over. Is that that's like just under two hundred twenty-two hundred to be two hundred yards a game? So he's just under that. Twenty-seven rushing touchdowns, having scored twenty-five the year before. Uh, he adds in a receiving touchdown for good measure. So 28 touchdowns in 11 games, you know, that's two and a half touchdowns a game for Ricky Williams in 1998. And just, you're right. Just a dominating season wins. The Heisman makes all American and everybody thought he was headed towards a dominant NFL career, not least of which Mike Ditka, who, like I said, basically mortgaged his whole team to, to bring the guy in. So yeah, a dominant year by Ricky Williams for, for Texas in 98 army beats Navy 34 to 30. And there is a lawsuit, uh, because filed by two West point cadets who were injured, uh, during the 1998 army Navy football game, when a railing at veteran stadium collapsed and sent them plunging 12 feet to the ground onto the, uh, you know, playing surface. So they ended up with a $1.1 million settlement out of that. <laughs> If we're talking about uh, colleges that we're fans of or alumni of, this was the first full year that Boston University did not have a team. They had uh, the team had been disbanded at homecoming weekend of 1997. So this is the first full year that Boston University does not have a football team. They did that at homecoming weekend. That's a weird announcement to make. <laughs> yeah, I think they did some weird things. In those the days. team has been <laughs> disbanded. Um, so. As kind of a bridge between the college football and the NFL season, the 1998 NFL draft uh, is known forever as the Manning Leaf draft. This is in April of 98. Um, The Colts have the number one pick. The uh, San Diego Chargers with number two. You also had some really great guys who were drafted in that draft. Randy Moss, Charles Woodson, Alan Fanica all ended up being Hall of Fame players. The big debate was, you know, it was it was kind of split between which guy would be the better pro, Peyton Manning or Ryan Leaf. It's another one of those things that sometimes gets twisted. 
that the that the Chargers picked Ryan Leaf over Peyton Manning, which they didn't. The Chargers picked Peyton Manning first, or the Colts picked Peyton Manning first. The Chargers took Ryan Leaf. Ryan Leaf had a very brief NFL career with no shortage of um, controversies. He was screamed at a reporter in the locker room, I believe, at one point. Um, didn't play at all in 1999. Played in 2000. By 2001, got a handful of starts in Dallas. And by night, by 2001, he was out of the league. Arrested a bunch of times. At one point, somebody pointed out that he kept getting arrested right around draft time every year, we'll that there was some we'll sort of thing there. Now, it does appear um, in the last seven, eight years, he has really uh, gotten his life together. He's a uh, he's sober. He's in, you know, very active in, a, in the recovery community. He's got a, a radio. Well, I was going to say he's got a job as a radio host and works for the Pac-12 network, which may not be stable employment at the moment. Um, does a little stuff with ESPN. So, you know, he's finally gotten his life together, but, uh, you know, that was a big storyline going into that season. And, and unfortunately a, uh, not a happy ending for Ryan leaf as far as his football career goes. Yeah. And I've heard interviews with him over the last few years where it does sound like he's kind of turned himself around. You mentioned Moss. The thing that really kind of sticks out in my memory of this season is, a couple of real powerhouse offensive performances in the national football conference in the NFC Moss as a rookie is an all pro with 1313 yards and 17 touchdowns. Chris Carter veteran also starts 16 games or plays in all 16 games. I should say Moss doesn't even start until like five or six weeks into the season. He manages uh, 10, 11, 1,011 and 12 touchdowns. The team finishes 15 and one. They're only who is their loss to in this season? Was They're, it the Cleveland Browns in Cleveland? It was not the Cleveland Browns. Tampa Bay. 27 to 24 on November 1st, they lose. Uh, and let me see. Let me see if I can just pull up the scoring summary from that game. How close did that come to? So uh in the so they actually have a lead of uh it's so 17-7. They go up 24 to 17 in the third quarter. And then um yeah, the 27 and then they um late in the fourth quarter, they're up uh 24 to 20, and then Mike Allstott scores the winning touchdown for the Bucks, uh, and the, that's the only Viking loss of the season. Quarterback on this team is Randall Cunningham. Everybody sort of associates those Viking teams with Dante Culpepper a couple of years later, but this was during that time period where the Vikings seemed to have a different quarterback take them to the playoffs almost every single year. It was <laughs> Warren Moon one year. It was Jim McMahon one year. This year, it's Randall Cunningham. Randall Cunningham, who in 1996 had retired from the Eagles, in 97 comes back, plays three games, or starts three games, and then in 98, he starts 14 games for the Vikings with a 13-1 record, throws for, how many touchdowns does he have in, he throws for 34 touchdowns with only 10 interceptions, makes the all-pro team, the first team all-pro, Randall Cunningham, 
And then the following year is basically gone again. He always plays in six games. And I think it's Jeff George who is the starting quarterback for them for most of the year in 99. But this one year, it's sort of lightning. And then it's Culpepper after that. And then after that, it's Culpepper. Yeah. But (laughs) this one year, it's sort of lightning a bottle for the Minnesota Vikings. 15 and one dominant offense. And they lose in the NFC championship game to an Arizona, I'm sorry, to an Atlanta Falcon team who sort of gets kind of a gypped a little bit by history. And the reason they get gypped, I think, is because, first of all, they get smacked around by the Broncos in the Super Bowl. And second of all, they they only win because Gary Anderson, the Vikings kicker who had not missed a field goal all season, misses a field goal that would have given the game to the Vikings because uh, I guess it would, it would have tied the game, I guess, because I see the final score here was 30 to 27. So I guess that would, or was or was it overtime? It was that went over- to overtime, I believe. It was an yeah. overtime game, and it was under the old overtime rules where all you needed was a field goal to win. And yeah. Um, okay. Oh, okay. I see here. Um, okay. Okay. So here's what it was. Vikings are up 27-20 late in the fourth quarter with like just over two minutes left. Gary Anderson misses a field goal that would have put them up 10. Falcons get the ball, come down and score. Game goes to overtime. Teams trade punts. And then eventually Morton Anderson, another uh, great kicker with the last name of Anderson, kicks another field goal to put the Falcons ahead 30 to 27, give them the win, send them to the Super Bowl against Denver. But that Falcon team, that was a pretty good team in and of itself. They were 14 and two coached by Dan Reeves. And this was the dirty bird Jamal Anderson year. And he, he put up just a monster year in 16 games, 14 touchdowns, 1,846 yards. So as insanely good as the Vikings passing game was that year with Moss and Carter and Randall Cunningham, the Falcons running game with Jamal Anderson and the Dirty Bird was just as good. And then over in the AFC, you had had the Broncos who had won the Super Bowl the year before, had gotten the... John Elway monkey off their back. He, you know, had gotten to the the Super Bowl all those times, gotten their butts kicked by much better NFC teams for the most part. Not for the most part, every time. What, three years uh, out of four, they were there and got their butts kicked. They had become the first AFC team to win the Super Bowl in 1997 since 1983. Uh, They beat that Packers team that was the defending champion. And that was the first AFC team to win a Super Bowl in like 14 years since what, 83, I want to say. Yep. You want to say that because I just said that. All right. Um, the, uh, so they, 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 um, they win that Super Bowl. Elway, a lot of people expect Elway to retire. He comes back. Terrell Davis is still one of the best players in football. Um, they start out 13 and 0. They're, they're, you know, a real machine that year. They end up losing to the, Kent Graham led Giants in uh, the 14th game of the season and then lost the next week to the Dolphins, which you know would have been a very interesting matchup because if they had been 14 and 0, 
playing the Dolphins, the Dolphins who, you know, still the 72 Dolphins, the only undefeated team, the 84 Dolphins had beat or the 85 Dolphins had beaten the Bears to hand them their only loss of the season, but they were looking past Kent Graham that day and they regretted that. Um, but Incidentally, the, the, Broncos- the same pastor at our church who predicted the Tino and Knobloch thing also told me that, that morning that he thought the Giants were going to beat the Broncos. So he was on a real roll that, that year in 98. Well, he was so much closer to the Lord and the Lord, we all know, is is very interested in New York sports. Um, <laughs> yeah. So they, they go third. They start out 13. They finish 14 and two. They're obviously the number one seed. Um, and Terrell Davis has just a you want to talk about monster rushing years is as crazy as Jamal Anderson's 18 and change. Mm-hmm. Terrell Davis, 2008 yards, 21 touchdowns. He's MVP of the NFL, and it's it's crazy, too, because Davis really. He rushes for his first four years in the NFL, 1117, 1538, 2008. And then he's hurt. Basically, the guy after this season, Terrell Davis only plays in 17 more games and his rushing mm-hmm. totals the rest of the year, 211, 282, 701 in his last three years. His career is ostensibly over after this. Terrell Davis is a guy, he's basically in the Hall of Fame on the basis of three or four seasons, which is not crazy, not as crazy at a, for a running back as it would be for some other positions, mm-hmm. but still pretty crazy. And then the other fourth team of significance to talk about is the Jets. The Jets, who had bottomed out at one and 15, they brought in Bill Parcells in 1997. They were what nine and seven in 1997 had a chance to make the playoffs in the last day of the season. Didn't do that. Um, I think they lost to Detroit that day or Seattle, one of those two teams. So they go into 1998 with with high expectations for the first time in a little while. And for one of the very few times ever, they live up to those expectations. They go 12 and four with Vinny Testaverde at quarterback. That had been one of their drawbacks in 97 was Parcells couldn't make up his mind between quarterbacks. 98, they go with Testaverde. Curtis Martin is there by 98. Uh, They start out actually 0 and 2. Yeah, with losses to the 49ers and the Baltimore Ravens. And then they go on a run where they win 12 of their last 14 games and get to finish the season. They're six and four, and they win their last six games to go to 12 and four. It's a team very much in the Parcells mold. He's got a lot of guys from the Patriots who'd been there. You know, and this is the best Jets team in a, in a long time. And they lead the AFC championship game 10 to nothing in the Mm. third quarter. And then, you know, Denver scores. And then on the ensuing kickoff, the wind takes the ball of the kickoff from Jason Elam and Dave Meggett. It's, it's, you know, can't get to it. And the Broncos recover, Uh, you know, they, they then get another field goal, tie the game at 10. And this game that the, the jets had led 10 to nothing in the third quarter, they end up losing 23 to 10, following year everybody's expecting them to be great testaverde tears his achilles on the very first uh, i think it's i think it's in the first half it's definitely in the first game of the season parcells leaves the jets then there's the whole belichick thing so sort of mm-hmm. you look at these teams and these franchises and it's like you'll never be back there again and up 10 nothing in the third quarter against the defending champions in the afc championship game and then you realize it's basically it's all downhill from there um, I had two other things I wanted to note uh, about about the season and a couple of these teams. 
Uh, first mm. of all, um, Elway is named MVP of this Super Bowl, which he had not had a great game in the previous year in Super Bowl 32 against the Broncos. In this one, he's 18 for the Packers against the Packers. I'm sorry, the year before this one, he's 18 for 29, 336 yards. So 336 yards on 18, uh, 18 completions is pretty good runs for a touchdown. And so he did have that famous helicopter play in the, in the Super Bowl before against Green Bay, but this is definitely his better Super Bowl. And he goes out on a, he's got to be the only guy ever to win Super Bowl MVP and then immediately retire. I can't think of who else that would have been. I mean, even Brady stuck around for a year or two afterwards. Mm -hmm. So that's impressive. The other thing I wanted to mention, and this is just sort of a apropos of, of nothing at all, but that Atlanta Falcon team in 98, their quarterback is Chris Chandler. Chris Chandler has a, a decent enough year, but he, he does run into some injuries. He only gets to start 14 games. Uh, so the two different backup quarterbacks get the start for the Falcons in those other two games. One is a guy by the name of Tony Graziani, who I have to admit, I know uh, very little about. It looks like he played three years with the Falcons and never started more than three games in a season. The other backup quarterback who gets into a game for the Falcons, who gets to start that year is a guy by the name of Steve DeBerg. Um, <laughs> and Steve DeBerg gives me hope because he is 44 years of age, which means that if I want to become an NFL quarterback, I still have four years in which I could potentially do that. <laughs> Steve DeBerg would not, who had been the, he would have been the 49er quarterback before Joe Montana in 1978, who hadn't played in an NFL game since 1993. And who one of those years in between 93 and 98 was the giants quarterback coach. <laughs> and he gets a start. He gets a which maybe that says more about the Giants. He was probably the best quarterback on the roster <laughs> or on the in the building most of those days. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so just just an interesting aside. Steve DeBerg is one of those guys. Uh, yeah, gets a start for a team uh, that that's on its way to the Super Bowl. Yeah, uh, it's so it's an exciting season in the NFL in '98 with some teams. I mean, it's the only year the Falcons are really any sort of a contender, at least as constituted three or four years later with Vic, they come back into it. It's the only playoff year for the Jets and the Parcells era. It's it's the Vikings are back in 2000. They make the NFC title game against the the Giants. And that's when they get the you know, they get smacked 41 and nothing. But it's sort of like this weird, like. The Cowboys are done. The Favre Packers are done. We're not at the sort of greatest show on turf. And then after that, the Patriots and all that type of stuff. Manning's just coming into his own. 98's kind of this weird year where you get a lot of guys and a lot of teams and a lot of stories that you don't get in any other season in that time frame. A couple other things to touch on. Um, this was CBS's first year back with football. After losing it, what, going into the 93 season, uh, they had lost the NFC package to Fox. You can listen to our Fox Sports episode for more on that. This year, they got the AFC package, uh, taking it from the um, from NBC. Uh, the significant thing that year, and you see it, you know, we talked about when Fox came on and the score was on the screen the whole time. CBS's big innovation was the first down marker and on the field, you know. Yep. And I can't imagine football without it. And, you know, we could talk about there being too much stuff on the field now and, you know, screens looking too busy. 
I will defend forever the first down line being on the screen. It makes things a lot easier. This was also the year with the Thanksgiving coin toss situation between the Lions and the Steelers in overtime when the Steelers, I think it was Jerome Bettis. It was Bettis, uh, yeah. There was confusion over whether he called heads or tails, and the Lions ended up winning. So they implemented a rule where the coin has to be called before it's in the air now to eliminate any of that confusion. Um, from a, just a couple of things, Arizona made the playoffs for the first time since 1982. 1982 was that weird strike year, so it was their first playoff appearance in a normal season since 1975. And their first um, in Arizona, too, because they'd still in, been in, in St. Arizona, Louis in 82, yeah. yeah. And they actually win a playoff game. They beat the Cowboys before losing to Minnesota. And then just one playoff game, which is a famous game, and we'd be remiss to not mention the game they call the Catch-2, the wild card game between San Francisco and Green Bay in the wild card round where uh, Steve Young throws the ball to Terrell Owens, who makes the catch in, um, in the end zone to win the game 30 to 27, who, you know, obviously the 49ers lose the next week to Atlanta. So it's not a catch that people talk about to this day, but also really the last great Steve, Steve Young moment of his career. Yeah. He only plays one more season and it's only three games. And then I think he gets knocked out with a concussion mm. early in oh. that 99 season. And just never, and, never comes back. Yep. So Super Bowl was a little bit anticlimactic, but, you know, plenty of interesting storylines in the season. Yeah. And I think you just kind of look back and you just kind of not to get weirdly philosophical at 1038 on a Wednesday night here, but you look back and it's like all these guys who, you know, such such just like key sports figures of our childhood or, you know, of those, you know, teenage years that you just don't realize how long it's been since they were around. I mean, Jordan, obviously, but you know, there's kids these days who probably don't know much about McGuire or Terrell Davis or even, I mean, Randy Moss maybe, but some of these guys, you just realize, you know, you talked about Jerome Bettis, like these were, you know, these were guys who were just household names 25 years ago. And now, you know, a lot of them, I mean, every, we talk about things that sort of invaded the popular mindset. Everybody knew what the dirty bird was for a couple of years. It's just, it's another one yeah. of those things. So it's in a lot of ways. And I guess it's, it's always the case and especially the case, you know, given that the time period in our lives when this was, but you think you remember so many of these things, not just as moments, but also as part of the PARP culture, whether it's the the, the football stuff with the dirty bird or whether it's the, the home run chase or all this stuff. So this was a really, really, there's just so many stories in sports in 1998 and uh, glad we were able to get through a lot of them here tonight. Yep. And then as the length of this will tell you, we probably could have done two more hours and cut it into a few reasonably sized episodes, but hopefully we did everything justice. Absolutely. And uh, we appreciate you all. And if, if, you, if you like what we do here, but you want to hear us go way back, we've got some other episodes with, like I said, 1920, 1941, and we're going to do 1923 later this year. So if you like the idea of a, a year episode, but, but don't want to do anything from when you were alive, then just uh, be patient because we've got more older ones coming. But until then, <laughs> uh, it's very late. And uh, I maybe in 1998, when I was uh, 15 or 16 years old, I could still be have some energy after 1040 at night, uh, although knowing me, probably not. But wrap it up. I, uh, <laughs> I'm tired. Andrew's tired. And uh, 
We'll catch you on the next episode. But until then, I'm Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.